0: Yeah. Yeah. So without any further ado, welcome Darren to the Australian Herpiculture Podcast,
1: mate. How are you doing? Thanks, guys. Good. Good to see you guys as well. Thanks for having me on board. Really? Thanks for coming on, to... mate. Oh, no worries. You know, it's always good to help and share what we've learned over the years. So hopefully someone will benefit somewhere.
0: <laughs> oh, no doubt. Yeah, thanks for doing the live with us as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think you're our first guest that's jumped on to do a live stream. We're still trying to get our necks around
1: this, so yeah, it's a bit of fun, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. we figured, you know, because of all your live cutting egg videos that you've done recently, that you wouldn't mind it. So,
1: yeah, I've got it all. I think it, I think it's good too. Like you see some of the YouTube stuff, and you know the people edit stuff out. I think I think the mistakes <laughs> and the tongue slips and the you know the tongue ties and that are all part of the, the experience. So, I, don't I know, agree. I, I enjoy it. We're in the human at the end of the day, aren't we? Oh, that's it, mate. Absolutely. We all make mistakes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's it. That's it. Well, um, mate, why don't you just try to kick us off here because we'll just jump straight into these kind of questions. As you said, you know, sure. you, you can talk underwater, so you may as well get started before <laughs> we uh, run this to four hours or something like that. Um, <laughs> mate, welcome to the show. As we said, um, you know, Thank Darren's you. one of Australia's leading python morph breeders and works on a plethora of carpets and anteresia projects as well from memory. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you've been doing a killer job with all those live videos and stuff over on Facebook. I've been enjoying tuning into a few of those, even though I'm not big into my, you know, mass Python production and morphs and all that sort of stuff, but I still find it interesting, you know, everyone's got something that tickles their fancy. So, you know, it's good stuff. Um, Mate, do you just want to give us kind of a quick rundown about how how you ended up with about 5,000 Pythons behind (laughs) you?
1: (laughs) Well, it's, it's kind of the, the long, the long, longer version. It's always been a, a lifelong passion. But growing up as a kid, I've, I've always had, um, you know, a love of reptiles and and oh, sharks, to be honest. And um, unfortunately, parents, dad in particular, was always oh, the only good snakes are dead snakes sort of mindset. Because you know, back in you know the early mid '70s when I was a young kid, um. They just weren't kept as pets or they didn't know anyone that was. And we used to do a lot of shooting growing up and we'd go out in the bush and we'd only go in winter because of snakes and it was always terrible. But always had this drive, just a love and an interest and a curiosity. And uh, every time we go to the, you know, the reptile park or, you know, the animal worlds back in the day, always trying to get my hands on blue tongues and chasing things around the backyard and lifting rocks and doing all that sort of stuff when I was away. But it wasn't until I was probably... 12 or 13, and a friend of my dad's used to own a, um, a gun shop at Top Ride, Lee, and he'd been talking to him. He goes, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of snakes. He goes, if ever, um you know, your son wants to come up, bring him up, leave him up with for a few hours, and we'll we'll play with some snakes. And I'm like, oh, unreal, and kept bugging dad, bugging dad, finally took me up there, got up to this guy up in his little lounge room sort of thing, and he's got death adders and red bellies and everything. He's like, oh, here you go. Pulls out a three-foot red belly and just gives it to me. And here I am, (laughs) you know, none the wiser on, you know, Venom or any any of that sort of stuff back in the day. And I was just – that was it. I was in love. I was hooked. Um, Couldn't get me away. I'm like, oh, I got back, and I'm telling Dad – you know, I was playing with this snake. It was unreal. I was in love. You know, he said he's going to give me one and I, I get a set and he'll show me what to do and all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, what sort of snake was that? red belly black snake. Body bull crap. <laughs> <laughs> was never allowed back in his shop at all. He got on the phone and abused the guy and said, how could you let my son handle something like that? And I'm like, what's wrong? Didn't know any different. But that that fired a passion um, and a drive in me to, to keep reptiles. No matter how hard I fought at home, it was like no, 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 no. Finally, in '97, uh, um, I bought a house, and I think it was was about oh, six months after we moved into the house. I said to my wife, "I've always wanted a snake." She so said, "Oh, yeah, that sounds right. I wouldn't mind having a pet snake." So I bought a snake, then bought some lizards, then bought more snakes. And I think by within twelve months, I had forty reptiles, and I happened to buy, and I think it was a lucky. I was just lucky at the time. I managed to get some bearded dragons, like, from a very first clutch that hatched through a guy I met. And um, he said, oh, just take them home. Just feed them everything. Like, feed them this, feed them that, like, just nonstop. So that's what I did. I didn't know any better. And I just absolutely demolished these things. Turns out they're a pair. So in 12 months, I've got a clutch of bearded dragon eggs. I'm like, what do I do? He's like, oh, just <laughs> chuck them in a container and put them on your fridge. So some vermiculite, all the eggs, put in on the fridge and hatch my first bearded dragons. And... Um, that first experience in that relatively short time that just sealed it and I've never had anything less than that in <laughs> <Been> reptiles <laughs> in over over 20 years of keeping so um, but yeah, so kind of did lots of lizards. Uh, you know, I've had Boyds, I've had uh, central netteds, bearded dragons, easterns and centrals, um, mountain heath dragons, jackie dragons, I've had Amy, I, I've had uh, Castle um uh, uh, sorry, Castle Neon, uh Northern Velvet Geckos, yeah, oh, um, Dura. Um, had Spencer's monitors, I've had Aki monitors, I've had all sorts of stuff. And then I kind of, I think I killed myself with the constant breeding and the food intake every day that they required. So, um, I used to breed all my own wood roaches. I had about 10 tubs, like 50-litre tubs of wood roaches. And I don't know if you guys have ever kept and bred woodies. Um, mm-hmm. I got an allergy to them. There was like... Yeah, there you black tubs. Yeah, there was... Um, yeah, every, every time I started cleaning out the, the wood roaches, I basically got like hay fever, seemed to be itchy eyes, runny nose, and I couldn't do it. And that was a decision once that got that bad. I'm like, no, nah, I'm done. So I started selling out all the lizards, um, the last to go are my akis. I absolutely love my Ristar Monas from Mount Isa locale, really nice purples and yellows. Um, and they were, they were the last to go. And at that point in time is when I just started doing more and more with the pythons, realising, hey, that's cool. I can feed these guys like once a week, once every two weeks, <laughs> once every three weeks, um, and not – go to the markets and buy massive bags of veggies and cut up massive salad bowls of veggies for bearded dragons and things like that and worry about insects and all that sort of stuff. So, And that was how I ended up at this point. It wasn't as bad as what it is now, but um, that's how I kind of ended up with so many snakes. And then once the uh, mutations got involved and working with new, new mutations, suddenly you've got to hold things back and that's where the collection suddenly rapidly grows. So that's kind of the long version of how I ended up, ended up with it. Such a. That's a.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a, a pretty familiar story in a lot of ways. Um, I think mm. we've all gone down that that snowball at some point or another, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. <clears throat> I have to <laughs> ask though, because I've I've got the same sort of Woody allergy that you're referring to there. Um yep. I ended up just buying like a massive respirator with like the chemical cartridges just so you're pretty much not getting any oxygen through there but um yeah that that's the one thing that seems to be my saving grace with working with the woodies is just making sure that i'm smart and i cover up basically but
1: yeah yeah look it's probably probably something you should do um in in hindsight i mean when was that it was probably i was bringing woodies back in oh, probably 03, 304 something like that and it was didn't really give it a thought but you 100 percent right a mask but it was like constant and, and then <laughs> breeding the wood roaches is like just getting the setups right so i don't know if you use yeah. flew on around the, the tops of your tubs to stop them running out i used no lids on them at all just had the flue on and like yours they're up high on you know like the white tubs over there behind the, the enclosures they would sit up on top of there so they had the heat coming through from the ceramics in the enclosures to keep them warm and yep. i'd just lob up carrots and uh, i was breeding rats and mice then so i used to take all the crumbs i used to actually sieve all the rat food had a big tray with a mesh on it, and I'd take all the crumbs, put it in a tray, all the crumbs of the rat mouse food, and put that in with the wood roaches so they had a, a good nutrient supply of food, and I'd throw carrots or that sort of stuff in for um, uh, moisture. Yeah. So they had moisture content going in. And they pretty pretty I know and it was just a, a rotating stock. So I found, I don't know about yourself, Luke, but – I find keeping about a kilo in a 60-litre tub seemed to be the ideal mass of wood roaches. As soon as you got too low or you took too many adults out, the production would slow right down. And it took me a while to get the balance right to feed the amount of lizards I had and to be able to keep a viable collection or colony of of the wood roaches. So once I got that balanced and it worked out to be about 10 tubs, so it would be like one tub, you'd use it all, then you'd go down the other end and then you'd do the next one. And by the time you got to that one again, it was fully loaded and off you go. And I'd sell off the excess if I had extras, and I'd um, sell those. You should take them to the AHS and sell them to people there. It was good. they <laughs> yeah. feed them no, the the lizards. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they, they are a fantastic food source at the moment. I think I've only got two tubs. There's actually a couple of cricket tubs up there as well. But, yeah, when I was back in the garage at the old place, I think I, uh, I peaked out at six tubs, and then I ended up overrun with woodies, and most of them were <laughs> in the garage and not in the tubs anyway. So, yeah, they're um, – Good food source. We've had a few people uh, jumping in. So, hey, guys, just in the chat there. um, Looks like Ryan Cox is staring you up from America, Daz. Um, (laughs) Ryan's just said, morning from America again, though that Darren guy is no good. He just drops pictures of his carpets in the NPR chat and makes us all jealous in the States.
1: (laughs) Sorry, Ryan. Sorry. (laughs) Got to share. Got to keep those uh, friendly Americans across the sea there. Jealous. They, had, That's, they had oh, yeah, stuff to start off with, now it's our turn.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're always good for a stir-up too. Hey, Jace. it's always That's good. That's right.
2: Them, um, well, they kind of started the race with the, with the morph carpets and then obviously they I did. think we've taken the lead now, especially with some of the stuff you're working with, Das.
1: Definitely. I think mean, so a lot of, lot of stuff uh, coming and being produced, a lot of things out here as well starting to turn up. And I think nowadays compared, you know, if we go back, 15, 20 years. It was just wild-type stuff, um, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. I, I love all the wild-type stuff as well. But now with the mutations and more people getting into it sort of thing, more people tend to look in a clutch for something different, whereas yeah. like a, a, a story I have, Tremaine um, Anderson, when he first bred gelatins many, many years ago, had them first advertising. there was one real freaky one. It was obviously a, um, you know, a, a, a random anomaly in a clutch. And he did the clutch half-half with Tim Mansforth down at URS. And um, this weird thing coming out from what Tim told me. He goes, oh, Tremaine goes, "Oh, well, who'd want this thing? This doesn't look anything like a gelatin. I don't want it. And send it down to Tim, you know. So I think it never proved anything out. I actually have photos of the animals of gorgeous looking gelatin, all weirdly patterned and, and striped and stuff. Um, never produced anything but i think nowadays when people see that anomaly in a clutch people are more aware of like oh that's different you know that's something new and now they're holding it back and now they're starting to work with it and they're trying to see if it's something genetically inheritable that they can reproduce or whether they're just just anomalies and i mean that happens we get weird stuff all the time chimeras and paradox and things like that so um, I think a lot more people are aware and therefore we're starting to see more mutations across the board in a lot of different species now, which is cool, well, I think.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And you're seeing a lot of – actually, a lot in Antaresia recently, I'm finding, yeah. well, according yeah, to Facebook anyway thing. that I'm saying. Yeah. Um, actually, Darren in the chat here, uh, Darren Boswell, he's proven yes. out a whole bunch of freaky things down there. Um yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a good segue. I know it's a little bit further down the line, but we might have to get stuck into some um, silver pepper talk just because that's something oh, that obviously just you're, super the we- same thing. you're super <laughs> well known for that. And, yeah, do you want to just give our listeners and our, our viewers a bit of a rundown about how that kind of ended up popping out? all those? Yeah,
1: it's quite a funny story, actually, because it started with the Diamond Python. So back in, um, I don't know how to say, so it have been five I think. I uh, had a friend who had these two Murray darlings and I hadn't kept Murrays at that point in time and I'd kind of been looking around. I really liked them. I thought they were nice. They were a plastic animal and quite a, quite a nice-looking animal in my opinion. And um, she lived in Sydney. She goes, oh, I don't really want them. I'm looking for something I can put in the name. She had a bird aviary outside and I said, well, look, i got a diamond here. I said, you want to do a swap? It was kind of in terms of value, though, fairly similar sort of thing. And she goes, Oh, that'd be awesome. So I got these Murrays, a bit undersized at 12 months. So I just gave them a good feeding. And at two and a half, I bred them. And in 07, I hatched, well, three, obviously, what the silver peppers, but these three unusual snakes in the first clutch. And I knew literally nothing about genetics. Wouldn't, I didn't know what recessive oils or incomplete dominance or any of that sort of stuff had absolutely no idea. And I actually made a post on. Um, Aussie petting reptiles back in the day saying, oh, is this a new new MD mutation with question marks? Uh, um, albino darwins were pretty much the only thing we had at the time. Um, and Simon Stone actually messaged me because he'd been working with Jags and was like, oh, how do you know they're Murrays? And I'm like, well, here's the photos of the adults. Like, what else would they be? There's nothing else. They're like pure MDs. And, um, yeah, so then I had to go on this journey of, understanding genetics and you know why like what's recessive i don't get all this and i had a mate try and explain it to me he was talking to me and i think i got more confused for the conversation and um i struggled with it for for a few years and finally i was reading something um might have been one of the ball python books or something i've got and suddenly the coin just dropped suddenly i went oh i understand now how this works and once i got my head around that I was able to then um, work out, you know, what I needed to do in terms to, to prove it out. So when that first hatch one had a um, defective epiglottis and couldn't tongue flicker at all. Uh, that animal was force-fed for, oh, geez, eight months, nine months, something yep. like that, seven or eight months uh, off the top of my head, and it showed zero interest in, in wanting to feed. So I, every time... Before I would force feed, I would offer it a food, nothing, no strike response, no nothing, obviously couldn't smell the food because its tongue wouldn't, you'd open its jaw up. If you actually opened its drawer up, it had a hole in the side and then its tongue would poke out, you know, like mm. a dog would it uh, <laughs> out the side. And, um, yeah, I ended up making the decision that if it's already got a, you know, deformity, if it did get it, if I did pursue, you know, force feeding and getting it to size, um would that be the best thing for the snake? And I, I kind of come to the decision, like, this thing wouldn't survive in the wild. So I ended up, you know, getting it euthanized, having it euthanized, uh, which left me two. One would not feed at all, no matter what I tried. It would it would occasionally take a feed and then it wouldn't eat for four times. The other one, I'd, I'd battled um, depression quite severely back at this point in time. Um, wasn't mentally well, but I'd gone and done gone to Anthony Stimson's show, his first one that he had at Homebush at that point in time, and I took one of them there on display. When I got home, tucked in the drawer, didn't get any of it, and it escaped, it got out, didn't have the drawer shut properly or whatever. Um, I found that because I think that show was in May off the top of my head, which is winter out here. Um, so that snake, when I found it well, four months later, was bad canker, mouth rot, obviously, you know, R.I., It went to the vets. I took that out to um, Michelle Daly out at Richmond, and she literally kept it there for a month trying to, you know, get it back on track, and it eventually succumbed. Um, And then I had the one left over which wouldn't feed. So the original parents, (laughs) it's a fun story, this. The original parents that produced the Silver Peppers the first year round, I put them on display at Stimo's first show in 2007. It was the first time... We had a reptile show in New South Wales. where We were going to actually sell reptiles at the time. So I had a display and had my reptiles there for, for, for show and to sell. Um, I had the adults for the Murrays there, the whole lot. Brought them home that season, cooled them down, witnessed several matings, never produced a clutch. Scratched my head and thought, well, maybe it's just one of those things, The stress of the show, being on display for three days, something like that. following season, uh, came into breeding season again. It was just starting to cool down. I looked at the female and she had a puffy throat. And I thought, oh, no, don't tell me she's got an RI. It didn't make any sense. She was in an identical enclosure to the male. Um, when I took her out to have a better look at her, I noticed these blisters down the side of the body. So once again, I rang Michelle and said, oh, have you ever heard seen this? She goes, oh, I have. It's generally not good. She goes, I'll come out, I'll take a biopsy and I'll, I'll have a look. So she came out. She syringed, lance one open. There was some like watered down blood came out of the blisters. She took a sample, went away. She goes, "Oh, bad news. There's cancer cells in the blood." I she can't. goes, it's, um, "It's got cancer." So I'm like, and "There's no treating it, unfortunately, in reptiles." So she took it, uh, euthanized it. She actually did it to a vet class she was doing at the time, and there was there was thirteen tumors in that female. And she said at that point, in time the largest one, appeared to be was on on the ovaries, and she thinks that was the reason why, despite six or seven lockups a season previously, she just wasn't capable of producing eggs. Um, so I lost her. So that means I still have the dad, the boy. I I still have. He's cruising in there in the in the front room. So that left, left me with um, one girl, and she wouldn't eat. So it then got to. 2012 so i think she was like four years old she weighed 300 grams so wow. if those aren't me. that's like a adult children's python sort of thing um maybe even a bit smaller wasn't big wouldn't eat and i walked into the room one day and she was in a in a vision vision tub i tried her in all sorts of things didn't make any difference so i actually got the pups and I just cooled her. I just put her in the Antaresia rack with everything else and just cooled her with everything else and ignored her and never touched her. And I walked in through the room and past passed passed the rack and I heard this bang. And I went, oh, someone's hungry. And I'm looking around thinking, what was that? Not expecting it was her. And it was her. She like, was like looking for food. So I ran, I was breeding my own rats and mice. So I went straight in, tapped a rat on the head, opened a drop, and she smashed it. And I'm like, Finally four years of <laughs> torture like this. This was the last snake. So I'd lost the mum, lost the other two, literally only had the dad and this this female. And, um, yeah, offered her a feed. So she then went in five, it was probably about five months, went from 300 grams to 1.8 kilos. To say I fed her was an, an understatement. <laughs> I just, I'm like, you want food? You're going to get it. And every time I went down now I'm like, you hungry? Obviously, you know, you've... If you know how to, I suppose you could call it power feeding, if you know how to do it properly and everything, you can get the female used to that sort of food intake and the temperatures right, you can really pump food into them. And um, she just grew, and I finally paired her back to the dad, um, at that point in time. And in yeah, so it would have been 2011, so 2012, she finally finally laid a clutch <laughs> like you know, this project that was literally on, on death's door, one one error, and I could have been back another decade um yeah. so yeah i finally finally got a clutch and then when that hatched uh i end up she dropped 12 or 13 i hatched eight and there were six peppers and two wild types and i'm like at that point in time i'm like okay it's only taken her forever in a day but at that point in time i knew there was something genetic going on It pointed yep. i believed all the way along it was recessive but you know it's all right to prove the gene, but you also need to prove against it. So I needed to to outcross. And then, you know, once all they got up to size, it gave me the ability to start then outcrossing um into Jags and Zebs and xanthics and Albinos and other things. And once they all started to hatch, you know, and you're hatching all wild types, you go, right, okay, it's it's now that I I think I did five clutches in one season, it was Jags and Albinos and pepper to pepper the first time I did pepper to pepper. And, yeah, ticked all the recessive trait boxes. And it was like, I, I think I danced around the room for a good hour or so, like, yes, finally, you know, all these years. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a long project and very, very close to being a dead project. Like, really, at any point in time, something could have gone wrong, could have lost the other girl or something happened to the dad or whatever. But, mate, he's, he's a trooper. He's probably a bit lonely. He hasn't had a girlfriend for many, many years. <laughs> His original wife passed away. Um So, but he's still there. So he'd be, yeah, when was that? It was probably, I think I picked him up in 2005, I think it was. So he's at least, yeah, so he's probably 16, 17 years old now. So the mother and father clutch pair? Well, that that was another fun part of the story because the person I got them from never kept, you know, back in the day, we used to have a book we used to fill out and send to national parks. She never kept any of the sheets. So oh, I used to always keep mine back in the day. So I said, when these hatched out, I went to her and said, hey, look, you know, where these animals come from? Oh, I don't know. Someone bought it from the A8, AHS. I'm like, who? who? Who'd you buy them from? I need to know. Like, I want to try and trace these animals. I don't know. I can't remember. Or can you look on your, your logbooks, you know, that you sent in? Oh, no, I don't keep those. I throw them all in the bin. So <laughs> to this day, I have no idea who bred them, where they come from, she said she bought the, the two from the same person, so I assume that they are clutch mates. Yeah. They might not be. One, um, the girl is very typical of um, uh, like the Mount Gammon type style um, MD sort of thing, a lot of brown and everything, really, really nice, whereas the dad's more bluey-gray. So they're they're very obviously MDs but very, very different. You yep. know, in appearance, so but I mean that can just be polygenic variation within the clutch, so yeah, not exactly. knowing not knowing what the parents were, um, so to speak. But yeah, so no idea, no idea where they come from, who bred them, anything, which is really disappointing because it would really yeah. be nice to know and go back to the person that had them and say, hey, if you ever hatched anything out unusual or different, or was it just lucky? So talk yeah. about being one of the luckiest guys in the hobby, I reckon. <laughs> definitely <laughs> like that, that proves out yeah so that's pretty and much story
2: what did the mode of inheritance turn out to be for the recessive.
1: Yeah recessive. recessive yeah recessive so it's a proven recessive trait there's still some things I'm uh, working on so anybody that's kind of seen the silver peppers they've got a black eye solid black eye and the albinos have a solid red eye but I do see in wild types the same black eye not all of them but just every now and then and yeah, often the patternings sometimes slightly different, and I kind of look and think, well, I'd, I'd say with the pepper patterning that the eyes obviously link, the black eyes obviously linked to the gene. Like I have zebras that have black eyes that aren't related at all, so and then I see some wild types, but I'm curious, hopefully, next season, um, I'll have some of these, you know, in brackets, wild type looking snakes with the black eyes to go back over a pepper. So. Hopefully, I'll kind of answer some more questions there and find out what's going on. So there's 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 some huge variation coming through with the the double head type stuff and everything. So and, and absolutely placid animals to work with as well, which makes it really nice. nice. Yeah,
2: definitely. Yeah, they're definitely stunning. I was just flicking through your Instagram before. They're probably one of my favourite morphs, I think, in carpets.
1: Yeah, it's it's nice that it's such an untouched morph. Like yep, and it was yep. really hard during the proving stage. People go, "Oh, so what's this look like?" I'm like, "Mate, they don't exist." Like yeah. you know, you look at an albino granite, for example, or an albino zeb jags years ago, and you could Google it, and they had it in the states. You can look up and you go, "Oh, I know what a granite exanthema or exanthema granite jags going to look like," or whatever. I can't look up a albino pepper. I can't yeah, exactly. look like a granite pepper or, you know, what's a pepper jet? Well, well, I don't know. I do now, but back then it was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, so it was really hard on some of the um, pairings I did to, to kind of identify the animals in it. And now that I've actually got a few clutches out and I can see that, okay, all the peppers are having this black eye or the albinos have this solid red eye. Um, but then someone mentioned the other day, she goes, oh, if you had a moon glow, and that was with a pepper, so you had a, a moon glow pepper, for example. She said, what, what would the eye color be? And I'm like, I don't know,
2: don't know yeah,
1: because <laughs> obviously, moon glows and snows have that you know, white, pinkish eye sort of thing, yeah. But I, I don't know, so you know, the thought in the back of your head, imagine having a, a moon glow, even though it'd be a moon glow pepper, I suppose, being a, a white snake, but then having just a, a red eye, you know, be like a red eyed Lucy, mm. or yeah. So, I don't know, it's like. No idea. The caramel, even the caramel peppers I have, have black eyes. The pepper jags have black eyes. The albino peppers are red eyes. Everything has black eyes. So, yeah, it's so much untouched territory yet.
0: It's still very early
1: days for it. Yeah, one hundred percent. There's not a lot out there. Not a lot of people. Oh, there's a few out there, but not a lot of people ride into it. Like it's taking. Obviously, you know when you when you make your first genetic combination. So if you you take a pepper and you put it within, a, let's say, an exanthic fragment's sake, you've got to grow those babies up, and then you've yep. got your double heads. So by the time you, they get a, a pepper at a hatchy, they grow it up for a, a couple of years. Then they've got to grow those babies up for another couple of years, assuming you're successful in your pairings. And then you've got to hope, with a double recessive, it's a 1 in 16 chance of getting an exanthic pepper out. So then you've got to hope odds are on your side, and you actually get that visual animal as well, so yeah. it's not, you know, with, with an incomplete dominant mutation, a zebra or Jack jag, you only need a zebra, you, you know, and you can get that showing up in the next clutch because it's a visible trait. So with a recessive, it takes so much longer. And I think give it a few more years, there, there's plenty of combination stuff out there. Um, I think you're really going to see some cool stuff, I reckon. That's Not that I'm biased at all. <laughs> <laughs> I you're think allowed
0: you're to be, allowed yeah. to be. Yeah. <clears throat> So uh, Darren Boswell's just brought up a pretty good, pretty good <coughs> little comment here that I'll throw up here, and uh, he's basically just said, "I reckon your pure Murray Darling silver peppers are the best carpet morph." Darren, make sure to keep some pure ones going. So that's definitely. a good question. Have you definitely got a nice pure line there?
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. It was one thing. It's it's amazing how many people, you know, are like, "Oh, throw it in this and throw it in that and use these all these combinations," which is great, but I always like. Uh, Going back to say, I still love my wild types, so I still like to keep pure lines of stuff. So even even to the point that when I started doing all the outcrosses, all the outcrosses were you were done with the male silver peppers. So the female peppers that I had and the head female peppers that I had only saw another pepper. So I never, you know, because you you can have the issues with retained spoon, i yeah. I'm Not sure if I I'm not sure if that is something that can happen when you put a fresh male. For example, so I don't know, but just to take that um, anomaly out of the equation, I never, never used anything over my female peppers unless they were pure peppers. So that was it. And then the boys did all the they did all the legwork.
2: That's a so they went idea, yeah. into
1: the jags, and it uh, wasn't until the only one I did, which was after I would kind of made the, the pure stuff and some of the hets, was um, I had a ghost male, a ghost, so caramel exanthic. Um, coastal from, from Wayne's from Wayne Lark Swine. And um that was the only that was the first time I would actually put well that was the second time, I'll tell a lie. Albino uh albino male over a female and that same female I put the exantic male over the following following season. So yep. the one girl. But um yeah so I actually have a clutch cooking. So I haven't done awesome. pures for a couple of seasons. You know it's obviously trying to get all some genetic combinations going. So this season I was pretty determined to just put one of my male pepper boys over one of the, the pure hit girls. So there's a clutch clutch baking at the moment. So I'll um hold back a few and a few more and keep the line going. You've got to have the pure stuff. It's amazing yeah. how many people want to get want the pure stuff, which is which is good. You know? It's well, the nice. patterning on
2: those pures is awesome. Like it's it doesn't it doesn't take away the colouring that they that the that they have so it's just kind yeah. of gives them like an ex- extra element to the to the pattern.
1: Yeah they do they also get um if, if remind me later if you want some photos for your pages I'll I'll dig some out but they also have this ghosting appearance. I don't know if you've ever seen Ruffies how they'll change or um yep. children's you know they get the brown and they get that silvery grey I mean yep. the peppers will do the same thing. You'll go there some days and you think jeez, I shouldn't it's not that they look crappy, but they look crappy than when they look good, if that makes yep. sense. So they still look good. Be you have joining Oh, you're looking average today and you shut the drawer. And other times you go back and it's like they're just glowing. They they the melanin drops out, the silvers pick up and they're they're much brighter. That's usually when I take photos of them because it's like, ooh, that looks good. Try to get a decent photo. <laughs> um so they they do. And I had a, a couple of photos for a, a talk I did at the um, one of the reptile societies years ago, the same snake, and you would swear they were two different animals, just one's like almost completely ghosted up the side, hardly any melanin in it whatsoever, and then the other foe, all down the backs, or, you know, the, the speckling they get, I suppose you could call it, is, is is quite dark and quite pronounced. Yeah. Um, no one, I, you know, anybody wondering what caused that? I have no idea. I've asked all sorts of people um, here and overseas and everything and some some say it's possibly to do with food and the blood cells. Some say it might be just the animal's content and happy, you know, just it's cool and chilled. I, I don't know. So if, if anybody knows, I'd love to know the reason why they do it. But um it's the most I've seen in, in any of the pythons that I work with that actually do it. So it's very cool to see, though. I love it. It's almost yeah, a can... little
0: bit similar to the way that, like, geckos change colour over night time and stuff as yeah. well.
1: Mm. Jason –
0: Oh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason, but do you know if anybody's figured that out with why geckos do it?
2: I haven't heard. I had a chat with, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Ursula um, years ago about it. But, yeah, I don't think anyone really knows why because your leaf tails change. Like, you probably just looked at your leaf tails and that's probably what you were looking at. Uh, <laughs> um, Castle and Aoi here. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. But, um, yeah, they changed colour. Like Especially, I find it was also temperature-related as well. Yeah. The colder they were. The more they change color, I think mean, maybe it's something to do with trying to get heat, so they go that little maybe. bit darker to you know to warm up quicker. And then once they were reach temperature, they change color, and then that way you know they can not get too hot. Because I know with the strophs as well, you find it with your ciliaris, like your brown and um, yellow ones, they'll change to that grey and orange. But it all, I think, it all depends on night time and, and heat and that. So you know, of a night time, they're not trying to get hot because there's, there's no sun to get hot, so they'll change colour and do that kind of thing. But yeah. that's, yeah, that's all I can think of, really. Because, I mean, if you think of your roughies as well, they change colour at night time. So
1: Yeah. yeah, and These are the same. Yeah. It's always at night time when they're, they're looking their best, so to speak. It's like they put on their formal sit yeah for dinner.
2: Yeah, it's like yeah. yeah. Look at me now. I look really good. Check <laughs> me out, baby. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I find the lighter colours always look better for some reason in the geckos, anyway. Not so. Much. I actually the roughies look pretty good in the lighter colours too. But
1: yeah, I, I, I like. I'm a bit of a fan for the lighter colours. Always like the the lighter coloured stuff. So yeah, I think it's just a right. point of difference.
0: I definitely like it on the geckos. That's for sure. Yeah, I think the rough, the ruffies I don't mind them. In the darker
1: shade, personally. Yeah, I fair. like
2: the contrast between the cream and the brown. But um, yeah, yeah, but no, definitely the geckos for sure.
1: Yeah, I had um, I was saying before I had old your castanelli um, quite quite a few years ago, and kind of went through the gecko phase. Had Eye uh, and Levis Levis and other things. And don't get me wrong, I love geckos. I just like every time you go look at them, they're out at nighttime. and I'm like, oh, yeah, pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love them. Like, don't get me wrong. I, they're absolutely cool. And, you know, I, I, I bred them all. And the only one I didn't breed um, were the castle And I actually had them decided, you know, they're just not for me. I thought I'll, I'll pass them on. And I actually sold them gravid. So I could actually see the eggs in there. The, both food. So it was a trio. I was a male and two girls. And both girls were gravid. You see the two white eggs in it. And I, I said to the guy I bought them from, I think I think like... I think it was like six hundred bucks or something rather for the trio back at the day. I think I had him for a bit more, but he's like, "Oh, you know, give me a price." I can't remember for life I knew who it was. And of course, he got like the nice yellow and probably a blue grey and then the black bandings and sort of thing on him. And um, finally, he was like, "Oh, I'll come down this weekend, and I'll come down next week." And it kind of got delayed over a couple of weeks. And by the time he picked them up, they were like ready to drop. Yeah. and – me being me, can't do the wrong thing. I almost wanted to pick up the phone and say, oh, "Mate, I can't make it this weekend. Can you come next weekend?" Because they were like ready to drop. You could see how big the eggs were, and I thought, "No, nah, I can't do the wrong thing." So I sold them, sold them to him. Messaging me a week later, and goes, "Oh, they dropped eggs." I'm like, "Hell yeah, no!" <laughs> so anyway, they hatched out, and he me He goes, "Have you bred these guys before?" I'm like no i haven't i said i was going to to keep them and work with them but decided i'd pass them on and he goes check these out they're all hypos i'm like what do you mean she goes there's no black in any of them he goes they're awesome so when he hatched me out they're just no black it was all just like all pastel yellow and like that bluey grayish color they had yep. well, yeah and um yeah he sold them for 600 bucks each he goes oh, i'm cheering he goes thanks
2: <laughs> <laughs> he
1: sold two and kept two <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm like oh, well, win something uh, lose well, some, what you that's do? right
2: you you won out with the silver peppers so
1: yeah yeah that's it and um the other one the other one i had which was cool which uh, i'm not sure where they ended up were pink amy so oh, yeah. yeah i had i had some amy um i actually worked in conjunction with a mate of mine so i bought i bought the amy and he goes oh, i've always wanted some and i'm like well, here you go. You take him. I said, you can look after him because he bred his own crickets and um, that as well. And I said, if you breed him, we'll go halves. And I said, simple. That way you don't have to buy any. I've got them. So he bred him. We had a few clutches and sold them on. So I ended up selling the adult trio to a mate. And then I had a what happened to be a trio that I'd held back. And as I said, I decided I was going to get out of geckos. So I actually had them at the show. Um, I was talking about it. Um, homebush there with um, Anthony Stimpson, and I sold them to to another mate. So he grew them up and he bred them and he goes oh did you ever produce any pink amoei? And I'm like no, oh, no, nah, they're probably more a pastel orangey colour. No, nah, no, nah, no nah, like pink amoei. I'm like well oh, no, nah, not really like thinking you know maybe my vision and his vision's different. And he goes no, nah, check this out, sent me a photo and they're uh, like baby like pink jelly beans. Like they were just pink, pink. And I'm like, no, damn it, I've sold something else. Anyway, <laughs> the adults that were sold were sold, my mate sold them to, to another friend. He messaged, uh, she actually messaged him with the same question. Oh, have you guys ever produced any pink ones? And we're like, no, we've never seen. So she sent a photo as well. She had pink ones as well, but they never bred them and I don't know where they ended up. So I tried chasing them and one didn't, one had dramas and one. Person that bought them, they were more just pets, so didn't really breed with them. And my mate ended up selling them off, un- unbeknownst to me. But yeah, I was like, oh, that would have been cool if I'd only, <laughs> if I'd only known. I would have kept them back and tried proving them out. But yeah, but they- the-, the photo was unbelievable. You know, if you've ever seen the baby, Amy eyes, they on like a orangey brownie colour, and these were like yeah. just pink, like a jelly bean pink sort of colour. Wow. Um, I got a photo of that around somewhere on a hard drive somewhere as well. But yeah, it was like. The things you do. So since those two um, occasions, now anything I breed, I always hold something back, yep. always. So if something weird or unusual pops out, I'm thinking, well, I've still got that line, so I can still work it. So it's been a habit ever since, hence all this. Yeah. <laughs> Can't breed <laughs> anything without holding it all back.
0: So, what what kind of numbers are you actually working with these days, if you don't mind me asking, or if if you're not comfortable putting it out there, don't. But
1: no, 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 that's fine. So, um, when I had a warehouse for a while, and that got sold, unfortunately, so I had to move back. So when I when I moved back home, um, it was in the vicinity of five hundred and seventy, well, uh, give or wow. take, and then, <laughs> and then then come April so April this year I think I was in the mid 470s so I obviously sold some hatchies and stuff and I think prior to egg um any eggs hatching I would have been high 300s probably so all the white melamine stuff there that's all adults there's um a whole front room front room's got um three python racks like vision stuff so he's got three python racks three uh, CB70s and two V35s, and they're all that's all adults in there, so it's like let's say 24 plus 33 plus 44, whatever that is, <laughs> something, something like that. You can do maths, so and that's just the front room. And then I've got all this down here, there's another two just right beside me here. That's another two, um, uh, CB70s, so there's another 22 adults there, and then all the white stuff over there behind me, that's all adults down there as well. Um, there's even a couple of, I've got some Barclay locale stimmies just here where the yellow labels are at the top. And they're not, they're actually quite small. So, and they breed in there. So there's even right. some adults here behind me. So, and then in another part of the house, there's hatchy racks. My <laughs> <I wasn't laughs> overly happy, but yeah, kind of, I had no, no choice. I was so um, buried into, you know, making genetic combinations that when you've, Got stuff, particularly with the pepper, where you've got, in essence, world first type stuff. I didn't want to part with it, so when I made our bean over pepper, I I kept all the double heads. So I didn't breed them all, but I kept them all because I wanted to be, you know, keep myself, you know, in front of the game, I guess, because that's what it becomes eventually, you know, everyone trying to beat you to the punch and. You know, I've sold some few off since then, and some other stuff, and, and everything. But yeah, but it's constant. So now that I've got albino peppers up to size, uh, hopefully this for this coming season, then you throw another genetic trade at it. So finally, you get something visual, and then you might say, you know, a, 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 I might put a ghost zebra, which a caramel xanthic zebra. So I might put that into the albino pepper, which will give me a five gene combination. So what do you do? You're going to go, okay, I need to keep all these. So. You know, and so you can have the chance of making more stuff down the track. So, um, yeah, and then it's just hold back, hold back. But even with um, your wild type stuff, you know, I, I do the same thing because it's how you better your lines. You know, yeah, whether yeah. it's a striped jungle, a bread lie, a diamond, doesn't matter what it is. You know, if you can put them together and hold back a few, a it secures your your lineage. So. Um, you never know what happens. Animals develop chim. I had a, a gelatin male. Um, he was probably f- four, five and a half. I think he had, like, produced two clutches. I opened the drawer for this. I knew he's not not looking for a feed, didn't eat any of it. You know, he might have been in shed. Um, next time, knocked back a feed. Next week, I thought, I better just check. Opened up, swollen heart, died two weeks later. You know, it happens. Had a, a black and gold jungle. Well, my son actually saw and goes, Dad, I think the snake sick, all its mouth swollen. I'm like, oh. Surely it's not an RI, but no, I took it out to Robert Johnson before I retired and he'd had cancer. But it all, all around the mouth was all just swollen up like a balloon. And I'm like, oh, is it a common thing? Do you see it very often? And he just went over to his laptop and just scrolled through hundreds of photos, yeah, as we see it all the time. That yeah, sort of stuff. Bad. So yeah. So by holding a couple back, if you've just got a pair and you saw the babies and you lose one, you know, yeah. you've either gotta go find find another one. And, you know, with lizards and that, that's not always easy. Particularly with hard yeah, to sex yeah. things like monitors, yeah. you know, you lose you lose your female or a boy, I and then mean, you got to go hunt round another one. So I've always, you know, if I can keep back at least another pair or trio, or depending on what it is, I'll keep back more. But yeah, always try to, you know, hold hold back for at least six months, and then you can pick the best, you know, you pick the nicest colors, yeah. and, and it doesn't matter what the line is, doesn't matter what the animal is, you know, whatever. When I say the best, whatever you like. So. Yeah. And you end up with too many animals.
0: Right. That's me with Gill and I, and that's why I'm <laughs> going to be keeping a few of these greens back as well. Much to my wife's dismay, she's going, "No, we need to sell
1: them and get a new car." I'm like, "No, no, no." <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm keeping before. five of these things. Yeah.
1: Oh, I would too, mate. Hundred percent. I would for sure, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Very so, cool. um,
0: D- Darren Boswell brought up a pretty good point here. Obviously, you know, you are pretty rack heavy there just because of the high numbers that you've got um darren's just asked do you ever wrestle wrestle with the limited space in those tubs with the adults i guess it's hard with such a big collection
1: yeah i tend to try to keep so like in that raxi beside me i tend to try and keep um the males so all my males will be in the the 70s um the big python tubs um will be the, the biggest of the girls. So, and some some of those girls are, are huge, and they have tons of room. I kept a adult pair of uh, uh, two adult female bredly, and they were made. I weighed them; they're like eight nine kilos. They're monsters. They're big nine foot bredly girls in python racks. mate, they just loved it; it just perfect. So, it is it is a struggle, and you know, I look at look beside yourself up there, look at your glass fronted enclosures. And before I actually had to move home, I think I binned – probably best part of 10 4x2x2s that I used to have down in in the warehouse. But I had 110 square metres down there compared to trying to shove everything into your house. And it just became a necessity rather than a want, I guess, like to, 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 to keep the animals happy. And they're happy in there. I mean, they do everything they need to do. They get fed. They get clean. They get looked after. They breed. They produce eggs, you know. So I can't say that they're unhappy. Certainly... If I had, if money wasn't the option, and I had uh, the space, I'd certainly really enjoy having, particularly the adult girls in glass-fronted enclosures like the ones over that you can see behind me there. So I've got a few, few there, and mainly one to give them a bit of room and a bit of stretching space and a bit of exercise and that, but also for for breeding. Um, I've so many times I've opened up one of the python drawers during during breeding season and the male's been spurring, and suddenly it spooks him, You yeah. know, and suddenly they go, like, oh, I've actually, I've actually." the worst I've had was a male was actually just locking in with the girl, and he retracted and took off, panicked around the enclosure. Yeah. And so it's, whereas when you've got something glass-fronted, you can walk past and go, oh, yeah, right, that looks good, and just walk away and turn the light off and not, not, not disturb them at all. So I yeah. I do miss it. If I had the opportunity or the space and you know a massive warehouse or a shed or something to set it up the way I wanted to, yeah, all the girls and probably even some of the nicer boys, I would have in, you know, say four by two by twos. I would probably actually go five foot, um, by, um, by two foot deep, but I'd probably go a little bit lower, maybe four hundred high or four fifty high, and then I'd have a ceramic heater down one end with a divider, maybe just thirty mils out, a foot out, with a gap in from the glass to a board so I'd make it look like a little hot box yeah. and then the other side i put a branch in so they can come out to the cool side and crawl around but you know I mean I've probably got 100 adult carpets so i yeah. did a big warehouse so it's not really um viable so I, I do but I think in some cases uh, racks are actually better for some species I think they're a more secure uh, happy place where they're not as freaked out like I've had like Palmerston jungles in the past, they used to be over in those white melamine enclosures behind me and you couldn't turn light and walk past them, you know. Yep. But you just As soon as you walk past, bang, bang, they're just smashing the glass, end up having to tie paper over top, move them, put them in the tubs, right as rain, you know, completely de-stressed, you know. They feed and everything, they do everything right, but just, you know, you don't want your snake smashing its head, you know, full force onto a glass pane every time you walk past. It's exactly. can't be good for the animal. You know they probably can't see that it's a sheet of glass there in front when you're trying to rip your face off. So mm. I think it's it's a bit of balance, so in in my opinion, um, I would rather have a few more display enclosures. I've got someone in the process of setting up, but yeah space is very limited in my yeah. wash. yeah. not not to
0: mention the fact that like enclosures like this take a hell of a lot more juice to run. Yep. You know, yeah. like it's a lot, lot different to just running a heat cord under a few racks or whatever like that. You know, it's um, a lot more expensive with physical light globes and ceramic heat emitters and all that sort of gear on them. Oh,
1: definitely. You know, you can put an 80-watt heat cord to some of these things and, you know, keep 60 snakes warm.
2: That's yeah. right. One you know, as
1: opposed to, yeah, as opposed to, a, you know, 60 or 100-watt ceramic in one enclosure for one snake. So yeah. You know, and yeah. then and
2: thermostats as well. Yeah, exactly. That's another like wasted power as well, but um, yep. obviously it looks like Vision racks are your racks Raxa choice there as well.
1: Um, well the, the, the actual Melamine ones over there, the Bell's tubs, I I built probably. Oh, I actually have photos of me somewhere other in two thousand and four building them, so I've been I've yep. made them for a while, so they are pretty old. They actually, have at the time I was I was had my own business distributing for Tim at URS. So I was getting microclimate heat mats like cheaper than anything else, and there wasn't many heat cords around then. So they all they all sit on microclimate heat mats. Um, yeah. But when I got the opportunity, actually, the first Vision rack I bought was from a guy Jason Boys, who first I think he was one of the, the first to import them um, at one of Anthony's shows. Might have been two thousand and eight or seven or something. Like that. And I bought a V thirty five for my Antaresia, and I still have it, and I love them. For, for two factors. One, they're quite sturdy. Um, I like the ventilation in them. Yeah. Um, but also the resale. When you build something in Melamine, it's got a time limit. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like if you go, go you <laughs> might be able to see like on the bottom of the glass one there, you can see a little dark strip between the tubs and the thing because it's, you know, gone and had a massive crap in the corner. Even though I've sealed it all with uh, Sikaflex back in the day, you know, a, an enclosure that's 15, 16 years old, it wears away. The melamine gets worn and everything, and it's actually soaked in the corner, and the, the actual cover on the edge of the melamine is now starting to peel off. So they got to get trashed soon. Um, so with these guys, they last forever. You can pull them apart. So if you buy one from somebody, whether they've had a virus in their collection or not makes no difference because you can – pull them apart so it's all plastic other than the, yeah. the rods that hold it together you know you can soak it all in plastic you f-ten it bleach it leave it out in the sun for a week do whatever you need to do and put it all back together and it's like new you know like i said the one i've got was I think it was must be 07 or 08 i bought it so i've had it for a long time and yeah all right it's dusty <laughs> at the front you know i cleaned it every now and then but you know, it still does the job. Same heat yeah. cord, everything doesn't change at all. You know, the original brown heat cores they used to come with. Yeah. So yeah, and I, I do when I, I kind of got that one, you know, as I could afford, I would buy more. And I still have I actually have a Python rack sitting here unused at the moment. And I've had people want to buy it, and I'm like, no, nah, you can't get them anymore. They're so expensive nah. to try to even bring into the country. So yeah, I think I've got Oh, God, the 1, 2, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 of them, I think.
2: So pretty much right. the majority of the ones that came into Australia you've got.
1: Quite <laughs> 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 a few. I bought a few. I bought some from Jason. And then obviously when uh, Steve Crawford was was bringing them in, I bought, yeah. bought a few from he, him as well. And then some that I've picked up through mates that have been selling them and stuff like that.
0: They're
1: hard to get. I, I, I love them. I know there's some yeah. people that don't like them at all. They're but nice
2: tracks.
1: I, Yeah, I, I find them really good. I wish someone would bring them back in the country and get some more.
2: Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. As soon as they come up for sale, they're sold almost instantly.
1: Yeah, oh, that's it. And they're probably selling more secondhand now than what they were new. Because yep. you just you can't get them. People are asking what they want from I knew someone that was selling a Python rack for three grand. Sold it, apparently. I don't know whether well, he did a cheaper price, but I'm like, bloody hell. I like, I think I bought two brand new from Steve with freight and everything. It was like five and a half. Yeah. I went for two racks, but, you know, they're good. I like them.
2: I like them. They not. do look good too. I like the black.
1: But. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually wanted to redo all the melamine stuff in all black. <clears throat> as well, um, just you know, dual black enclosures, LED light stripping inside the enclosures. You know, if I had them in display, I'd have the fake rock back walls and you know, get on the aspen bedding and all that sort of stuff and get back to, yeah. to you know, something that's visually nice. To look at like the racks are great and they serve a fantastic purpose, but I think walking in, and I uh, know I've seen, um, I think it was Alex Leith, uh, mm. up far north. New South Wales, like he's done up, he's hurt him down below and it's absolutely stunning. I just went, yeah, dude, come amazing. down and build me that. Yeah, it's just incredible. Like absolute credit to the bloke. He's the top guy as well. And, um, yeah, when I, when I saw his displays and setups and the timber and all the fake background, you know, the fake rock backgrounds and that sort of stuff, just unreal, you know. And it, Getting back to that is is something I've got a, a plan to do at long, some point in time. But, you know, I've got to see out the projects and stuff that I've got going at the moment. So one day. Yeah.
0: Well, that's that's it. You've got a lot on your plate and, you know, at least you know where you want to go one day when you've kind of, maybe you've burnt your course or something like that and you can kind of go, you know what, I've done my bit for the hobby. And, you know, you can go back to that sort of oh, little kid in a candy my-
1: shop sort of thing. Yeah. As far as my wife's concerned, I've done my bit for the hobby 10 years ago. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, the house back now? Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds like every every wife of a reptile keeper.
1: Oh,
2: except for maybe I actually, a, Sorry, yeah, except for maybe Ty. either she's probably here, yeah, it's probably the other way yeah. around.
1: Those two. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll send my wife up there just convert my wife a little bit more. Funny I, I must... you say
0: that she was messaging me looking for stuff today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I gotta admit, like, um, my wife won't touch the snakes, so you know, it's if I she'll help with cleaning, so if I take them out. I mean, she's an absolute workhorse. So if I take the stuff out, she'll help with the cleaning. So normally I'll take them out. She'll take the water bowl. I'll clean the tub and put it all back. Um, But, yeah, it won't touch them. But last year I spent a bit of time away travelling for work and I wasn't home during hatching. So for during the hatching season last year I was away for three months. Wow. And and stuff's hatching on the set. I'm like, I said, you're going to have to feed these things. Like, I don't know what to do, you know. And... um. Mate, she smashed it out, eh? Like, honestly, like, she saved so many snakes' lives because if you hadn't have yeah. done it, I had really no one I could fall back on to help with so many animals. And, um, yeah, and even even this season now, you know, I think I've hashed out about 50 ants or something at the moment, and I think I've got five feeding and she's done all the rest, all the rest of feeding. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, my patience gets, I get a little bit impatient. Feed you, little bucko. <laughs> Yeah, and she sits there for hours and happily, but if they come out of the tub, it's a scream and a yell, I've got to come and put them back. But you know, normally when they're little, they're happy to just sit there and, and not do much. So, um, yeah, she's massive help in that department, that's for sure. I mean, you know, anyone that's getting baby snakes to to feed, uh, knows you sit there for hours, and know, it's like it takes it and then it's like freeze, don't move, you know, yeah, unless you're lucky, you've got a
2: lurking, you just yeah, work it.
1: Yeah, feed Condors the day after they come out of the egg, whatever yeah. Yeah.
2: they've all eaten now, haven't they, Luke? Yeah, well, and some of them <laughs> two, two feeds already. Yeah, they've all. I've yeah. actually got to
0: mark down. I'll probably go through later, but yeah, I need to mark down all the sheds because they've they've started shedding the last day or so. That's their first shed, but yeah, some of them already had two feeds. Maybe you need to come down here, mate. And give me a few pointers. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently maternal helps. Just saying. Like yeah. the, these things came out way bigger than what I was expecting them to. And I've seen a lot smaller chondros out there. So I, I don't know if that's helped somewhat, but there was absolutely nothing left in these eggs. Like what do you do?
1: Um, what are your feet? What was your first go to food? Did you try rat pups or like fuzzy mice or uh, pinky mice? Oh, pinky mice. Okay, Roddy. Yep.
0: Pinky mice, no scenting, little bit of teasing. A couple of them, I just kind of squeezed the nose and got a couple of drops of blood out. To yeah, 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 make them smell a bit more funky, but um, that was it. Yeah, just kind of hitting them on that magic curve as well. You know, you'd know more than most, but you know, that yeah. kind of like curve just behind the yeah, get the turn around with the head. Yeah, yeah. that seems to trigger them pretty good.
1: Yeah, you get used um, to tricks when you've got lots to feed. Try that, if that yes. doesn't work. Try this. Oh, that worked. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's oh, unreal result, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: I was I was actually I was planning to put them in the incubator just so they'd just be consistent temperature for a while, but. I ended up having more more babies than I actually planned out of that clutch because I could only see eight eggs. I'm like, oh, I've got space because my incubator is only like this big, unlike yours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, yeah, got them all in the rack, got them all feeding. Pretty stoked with it, to be honest. So I just got to keep them humid for the time being.
1: Mate, awesome. That was the first. I think it was you and uh, who was someone else actually? Um, maternally incubated a clutch of chondros this year as well. I can't remember yeah, Matt
0: was. Somerville did it pretty much Matt the Somerville. exact same time. Same time I did. So. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll say it again. Mine went 50 days, um, and his went 52. Uh, wow. Both of us had a 100% success rate with hatching. Um, he had I, I got 12 out. He had 14 eggs, got a set of twins in there as well, so I ended up with 15 babies.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Who um, says mother right. doesn't know best, eh?
0: Ever since that, I'm going, you know what? Bugger putting those things in the incubator anymore. I'll just let them do it.
1: Yeah, yeah that's something I'm going to have a crack at next year, um, getting setups right. Have a bit of a so Peter Birch seems to be the someone that's actually had quite a lot of success and has been doing it for quite a few years. So yeah. I'll certainly be hitting him up for a few pointers and tips to make sure just you know doing things right. Um, I've seen the other side of it where it doesn't go right. Yeah, um, you know as I mentioned, having been away from work it was during that egg laying time and all that sort of stuff, and I lost a lot of clutches last year because uh, the setups went right. You know, and yep. it wasn't that. It wasn't a case that I'd intended them to maternally incubate. It was a simple case that when I was supposed to go away for work, constantly got delayed, delayed, delayed. Then it was like, you're going away next week. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, flight's on Friday. And this is like Monday. And I'm like, all I had time was to clean everything and pray. Didn't even, couldn't even check if things were ovulating and things were gravid or or what. You know, still had things paired together. I actually had to get Brent Smith from uh, KHP Reptiles to actually come over and separate stuff that was paired because, you know, I was up up in Darwin and flew out to Elko Island and was there for, for three or four weeks. And then I went back to Darwin. They were going to fly me back home because COVID, they're like, if we pay you, will you sit in Darwin and stay in a hotel room for a couple of weeks? I'm like, you are going to pay me to sit here? They're like, yeah. And he goes, Then you can go to the next job, which was at a place called Nuka. And I'm like, uh, yeah, all right. So in Darwin, I sat for three, three a bit over three weeks, I think. So, you know, because they also had to pay me to come back and then pay for quarantine at the facility up there, Howard Springs, and, and everything as yep. well. So I was like, yeah, all right, chill, go down to Darwin. It's pretty bad. It gets expensive when you're there by yourself and kind of go and, and publish this around the corner and go yeah, have right. for dinner <laughs> and a couple of beers or down the oyster bar or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. gets a bit but, boring too. It it did, mate. Yeah, I mean, hundred yeah. percent. It, it certainly did. Like, I bought a laptop before I went, so I had Netflix and games and stuff to try to keep me occupied. But, mate, there's there's not a lot to do in Darwin. Be all right yeah. for a holiday, but once you've been there and kind of seen most of the stuff to do, it's like, now what do I do? Same as yesterday. Walk across the road, go to the cafe shop. I actually discovered the gym. Um, where we were staying. So, unbeknownst um, to me, the hotel where we stayed actually had a membership with the gym across the road. So when I found that, i have been there for a week and a half, I'm like, oh, so I got up in the mornings, went over, hit the gym for an hour and a half or something or other, and just to keep fit for work, and yeah, I came back, and it's like, what do I do today? And it's like 32 degrees every day, and stinking hot, and it's like, oh. you know, but this or this, what do you do? <laughs>
0: you, you didn't get tempted to rent a car and pull a couple of all-nighters and go and search for an
1: OP? I did. I actually did a bit of herping. Didn't have, yeah, no, I didn't, didn't quite go that far. Um, I did have a car. Um, the, the guys at Workforce said, "Oh, here's our work you, Do whatever you want with it." Um, so I did do a few, few night herps and went out cruising around, but not for me with the territory out there, and kind of didn't really want to push my boundaries and not knowing, you know, where to go with a two-wheel drive Ute. You know, just had a Commodore yeah. or a Ute. If I'd had a four-wheel drive of sorts, I'd probably be a little bit more venturous and. Try to hit up a few bush tracks or dirt tracks or something like that. But I did go around. Did find um, some of the sites are on. Did find a few cool critters. Found a um, children's. Uh, Found a nice, nice northern bluey on one of the trips. Heats of frogs, saltwater crocs. Um, Saw wild dingoes. Saw wild buffalo and a lot of lot of stuff was just cool to see. Like you know, I mean, it's probably nothing for those guys that live up there, but. Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, I'd love to see some dingoes. So we saw a pack of dingoes, so that was pretty cool. And then to come around a corner on dirt road at 140 k's an hour and there's like wildebeest down there, it's like, oh, whoops, we better slow down. Um, <laughs> dirt road, we We're on dirt roads, not on Tard Road, out in the middle of nowhere Um, because we were working in Aboriginal communities. So certainly an experience,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a different world up there, that's for sure.
1: Mate, it, it, it is. It is definitely a different world up there. Like yeah. One of the places we worked at – we're sidetracking here a little bit. We'll get back on topic. Um, But, yeah, one of the places we worked at, we did 32-day day, stroke. Uh, wow. Average temperature was 42 degrees. So cold day was 39 and hot was 46. Yeah. And that was like no no rain, no – oh, there was a wind, but I think the wind was like 35 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jeez. And we're in, obviously, you know, we're working on a construction site, so we're in longs and longs, so, you know – Long pants, work boots, long shirts, hard hats, you know, all the stuff. And we're building water storage tanks. We actually just got an award for one of the tanks we built at Hermansburg, which is pretty cool. Um, But, yeah, we inside the tank was hitting, you know, 60 degrees. Like just – we had a digital thermometer inside the tank and it it, – LCD screen and it it stopped working at 57. Wow. Yeah. Mate, drinking – 10 to 12 liters of water a day. Yeah. Like you just you can't keep it in yourself. Like, it just, and you don't go to the toilet. Like you don't just, worry. No. Just <laughs> it's sweat. Just sweat. Yeah. Just crazy. Experience. Forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. So we get to snake talk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought it up because, uh, you know, J- Jason and I are pretty much heading up that way in, yeah, end of February, thereabouts. So, yeah. Season. Jason hasn't oh, been up there yet, so this is my oh, third, third I, trip to the NT.
1: We, I did just we, we did did a job in Catherine, and we had to go up. Ended up being in bang smack middle of wet season, so the the river that runs through Catherine there, can't uh, anyway. I like it, no, whatever it is. Um, it normally sits at about three to four meters down the bottom. We were there, it got to twenty six meters, so it was. Wow. It was 35 degrees, anything from 33 to 36 degrees Celsius every day and humidity was like 100%. Like you would sit there in the shade, in the shade. So I was overcast and you'd sit under, a, we had a little little tent we'd put up or a little marquee we'd put up every day to put all our stuff under and you would sit there under the cloud cover in the shade and the sweat would just pour out of you. Like It's like working in a sauna. It's just yeah. it is one experience. Catherine River, thank you, Des. I thought it was, I wasn't <laughs> sure. Yeah. Catherine River and Catherine, that makes sense, doesn't it? But
2: yeah,
1: yeah no, it's, it was crazy. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm
0: excited. Okay. So just to bring it back on to kind of topics, things yeah. we're here to talk about breeding snakes. Um did you want to just give us a bit of a rough rundown about how you kind of start out your breeding season or what, what
1: do you do leading up to breeding season and then yep. progress from there? So breeding season for me starts now. So literally all the girls that are laying now, um, so I have a kind of a plan. So every season probably come uh, January, sort of early January, even now to January, I'll actually start looking at what I have, what's its size, what's going to be its size, and I'll start making a plan for what pairings I want to make. So if I you know, want to look at making new combinations or I just want to make it looking same sort of stuff, I'll, I'll kind of work out where I'm going to go. Um, and it comes, it starts with conditioning the girls. One thing I see a lot of people, you see posts and people go, oh, that's, you know, too fat, it's overweight or it's too too skinny. And if you don't have good condition on your girls, you're going to struggle getting a clutch. Some will. Some will still produce a clutch. So obviously once they've laid, laid a clutch, they're skin and bones. Like They're really, yep. really laying a big clutch, takes everything out of them. So as soon as they've laid a clutch, give them a few days. I mean, I, I see people, you know, they take their snakes and bath them in yak milk and all sorts of stuff. And I literally, you know, I, I don't wash them, I take them out, I clean their enclosure, clean their water bowl, give it a spray, new paper, and put the snake back in, leave them a few days to settle down and they start taking food like no tomorrow. Um, So I always try to get – I'll feed the girls a lot heavier straight after breeding. So I'll give them one decent feed just to get their metabolism cranked up so I don't, like, pump them a big, massive meal. So I'll give them one, say, you know, one jumbo rat or extra large rat for, for a big, large carpet. Um, And I'll let that digest and probably a week later I'll then offer them another one and then I'll start to either A, increase the frequency to more than once a week or double their feeds. So, you know, when you're talking a six-kilo female sort of thing to give them, you know, a 300-gram rat and such, so you give them 600-gram feeds, it's still not a massive feed. You're only talking 10% of body weight. Um, so I'll try to pump them a little bit harder for the first few months or a couple of months coming out of the breeding season to get that bit of condition and meat back on them. And then I will slow it down. So just through, through December, January, February, I'll just give them a regular feed. Boys will get fed. Uh, I'll normally give them a few feeds, same, straight out of breeding season, and then I'll slow them down to I'll just maintain their condition really. So it might be every three weeks, might be every four weeks, might be every two weeks. It's just random. Um, I'll, normally depends on the male. Uh, so then I'll get coming, coming into probably towards end of February is when I'll actually pick up the feeding on the girls again. Uh, it's kind of a theory of mine, I think, you know, I see people all the time, they'll go, oh, it's April, stop feeding your snakes. It's time to, you know, let them, you know, empty their intestines, so to speak, and don't feed them and hold off. Well, I don't agree with that, and the reason I don't agree with it is it could be warm for another two months. So if you look at this year, my stuff didn't start cooling until well into June. So you stop feeding in April, that's two months of feeding where they're still sitting in prime temperatures, they're still sitting at a, you know, with a heat during the day. They're still burning energy. So I keep that feed up to them, and even if that means dropping from an extra large rat to a, a large rat. But I'll, I'll give them a feed every week. So I'll feed them every week up until the boy, I've started cycling. I see the boys are starting the cycle, and that's when um, I'll reassess the, the condition of the girls. If the girls have plenty of a condition then at that point in time I go, well, boys are now off their food, they're ready for mating, so now I'll let the females cool. So providing you're supplying a good heat during the day, so my daytime temps during the off-season through feeding season, that sort of stuff, is the same as in winter. So the daytime temps are the same. So providing they have that uh, warmth, they can still digest whatever is in their gut. They can still digest, process, and even though the temps are getting cooler at nighttime. So giving them that feed, I think, almost triggers them like, well, there's plenty of food around, everything's right, it's a good season, there's no reason for me not to want to produce a clutch. You stop feeding them, you know, two, three months prior, suddenly go, well, hang on, I haven't had a feed for two months or three months. Now there's a, a male in here, they might lock up, but whether they produce a good solid clutch of 20-plus eggs or none at all or a small clutch, I personally, it's and like I said, it's just my my opinion and what I've seen over the years, um, I think can make a big difference. And yeah. I think keeping that food up, the females have the condition, they've got the weight, they need that bit of extra fat, you know, the, the amount of calcium and, you know, energy those females put into laying those clutches. And you'll see it in people that have smaller animals, you know, you'll, like someone said to me, my Darwin's dropped clutches at 27 and 28. And someone said, oh, you sure they're pure? I'm like, yeah, they're pure. They're just big, healthy girls, you know, they're not, you know, like oh they're five foot and weigh two kilos. They're you know, probably verging seven foot and probably weigh close to six and a half kilos. Yeah. So because they're fed appropriately, they're not fat, they're not obese, they're just big, healthy, breeding females. So so that's what kind of kicks me into season. Um, I then come come March, I'm normally monitoring all the females very closely, all the ants, carpets, everything, I'm monitoring all the girls and their weight and their condition. If I see something and I take them out and I think, geez, you you know, you need a little bit more meat on your bones, I'll give them a double feed next time or I'll feed them a second one, um, you know, maybe four days later or five days later uh, to keep that feed on them. And then I allow them to cool when the weather cools down. So I find, like, it's not something I see many people talking about, but atmospheric pressure, you know, cold fronts and that. I mean, they're really, in my opinion, very crucial to breeding um, and to be have some success at breeding. And it got told to me many years ago by Brian Champion. Um, for those who don't know Brian Champion, he's probably one of the nicest boys I think I've ever met in a hobby and probably one of the best condro breeders I've ever met. Um, and a champion bloke. And he said to me years ago when we were talking about breeding condros, this would be early 2000. Um, he said, he goes, when there's a storm coming over, he goes, I'll just open the windows. And he goes, when I walk in that room, he goes, the condos are all locked up. He goes, as soon as there's that pressure change, he goes, they know, and obviously being a you know, top-end tropical type species, obviously that, that pressure system, and it's always stuck in my head. So once I know temperatures is starting to get cold and we get a cold front push through or something like that, I'll do exactly the same thing. I'll open the doors. The enclosure temperatures will remain the same, as I said, during the day. But if it's cold during the day, I'll open the doors up, I'll let that cold air in, I'll open the windows up, let the cold air in. The snakes will feel that and that will help cycle the snakes. And one of the first things I ever notice is usually a male Teresa. and the first thing they'll do is go off their food. So you'll be be going in doing your feeding as you would normally, checking the girls, and the boys will be like just pacing the enclosures. Off from the food, they come up, they look at it, they look away, they come back, you can rub their backs and they'll arch up and they'll look at it and they'll go away. And it's not that they don't want to eat, it's just not what they're looking for right now. They're looking for the girl that's in the, the drawer next door. Um, so that's the very first thing that I notice that when my animals start to change, and that's after we've probably had a good solid week of, of cold temperatures, probably in the you know 15 degree sort of brackets at night time, and are starting to get down to that, that sort of coolness. Um, once I see that, that's when I will slow all my feeding down. So that could that could be. The second week of june it could be the you know first week of may so i don't fight the weather there's no point arguing with nature uh, if it's 28 degrees all day every day what's the point of trying to trying to cool your animals to sub 20 degrees at night time when you're not getting that temperature um so that'll be the first thing i notice once i notice those ants are going they always seem to go sooner um, that's when I'll notice the male carpets will start to do the same. They'll start to get more active in the enclosures. And I normally before I start pairing anything with girls, I'll normally not so much the ants, but with the with the Morelia, I'll actually start to combat the males. So I'll take a I'll take a couple of boys and I'll I'll throw them in in together and just see what their reaction are. And I mean you don't leave them in there. Don't chuck them in, and go, oh, I'm just gonna go and have a coffee and watch a movie. Um you literally put them in there and, and you'll know if they're so they're starting to cycle, mate. Right? They're combating within no time whatsoever. And you don't need to leave them there to smash each other's brains out. Put them in, you'll soon hear them throwing coils at each other. You can open the drawer, pull them out. It's probably the best time of year for handling your snakes because they rarely bite at all during that time of year once they're cooled in, in the cycle. Um, and then I'll normally give them a couple of weeks after that, so then I know that they're cycling. I can go right here, yeah. I'll reduce the temperatures at night time. I only aim for my temperatures at night time to get sub-20 degrees. So as long as the room itself is sub-20 degrees, so anything from, you know, 18, 18 degrees is kind of where I like it to be. If I know that room's getting that cold, I know those animals are cycling. So I'll let my thermostats probably come down a few degrees. If you've got a room, like my front one, that's got quite a few animals in there, I'll actually use a timer and actually cut out some of the enclosures just to allow that heat to dissipate out of the room. It's a small room with a lot of stuff in it, so I'll open windows and do whatever I need to to, to cool down. And then, yeah, I'll give them a few weeks and then I'll start intro, introductions um, depending on the, the species. So, you know, things like Murrays, i find that some people say they go late. <clears throat> Mine normally go pretty early. So I'll normally start pairing them up. I'll start jungles. I'll just start putting a lot of the Morelia together and then I'll monitor and see how they go. Um, if I see a reaction straight away, if I open the drawer and there's one here and one over there, I'm like, well, you know, she's not ready yet or he's not ready yet. So I'll, I'll take them out. Uh, I'll use combating as a way to to spur on um, excitement. So, you know, if you pair C and I don't see any action together, I'll take another one of them, a good male. So I'll put it in with the male and the female that I want to breed. I'll just introduce another male. And often that will stimulate the female. She's like, oh, the boys are fighting. Oh, that's good. Who's going to win? Um, and that'll also stimulate the males as well. So you can take them out. And I've seen it to the point I've actually put them together, separated them, gone back in the room an hour later, and the male's locked up with the female after they've been there for three days and haven't done a thing. So um, once I've seen the lockup, I'll separate the boys, so from the girls. So I'll, I'll take the male out, throw him back in his drawer and give him a few days rest, just give him a break. And then if he's got multiple females, I'll then take him out and introduce him to another female. I'll normally leave him in there for four or five days sort of thing, subject to if I see mating. If I've seen that lock up, then I'll, I'll take them out to give him a break. So, so give him a bit of a rest. And i pretty much repeat that for the whole season. Um, if you've got a good male that doesn't need combating, I don't bother. It's only if I've got one that's, you know, might be a, a young male. It's his first time. He's kind of keen but not sure and... That and sometimes he just needs a little bit of a little bit of a fire up to get him, you know, a little bit more vigorous with the girls, and um, find that generally works really, really well. You can I have used skins as well, um, like a fresh shed off another male. Sometimes they, yep. they don't like that other the scent in there, but I find with the combat of putting in another boy, mate, it just it, they just get triggered straight away. It's like an instant instant response and, you know, I just I, I, just find that's what works for me and, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, yeah, um I'll repeat that and then I'll just keep an eye out for ovulations. And one, like I've got a lot of questions this season with people saying, oh, you know, I've, I saw my, saw my, you know, my pythons, whatever pair, mate, do I separate them? I'm like, no, just keep them together. Like it only takes one mating to be successful, but there's nothing wrong with having seven or eight. So until you're, you're 100% certain you've seen that female ovulate, you'll often, often see a lot of people going, oh, I think the girl's ovulating. i look at them and go, it's probably just follicle development. It's probably not, a, you know, full-on ovulation in some cre- some animals. So I'd always suggest, like, just keep them in there. I mean, you can keep them in there till she lays eggs. You'll generally know the female's going to be hiding in the corner, coiled up, and she'll have nothing to do with the male you know, at all, like, she's like, I'm done, I don't need you anymore, you know, take him away. But if you're not sure, just leave him in, you know. Yeah. If you, you know, right up to the point of egg deposition, you can, it's not really going to, you know, she'll just go in the hide box, the nesting box or whatever and, and do whatever. So um it's through season and then, you know, once you've seen those ovulations, if you know what you're looking for, you can then separate your males and get your nesting boxes ready and, and get them in there. I just use sphagnum moss. Uh, moisten it up with some water, give it a good mashup, and you know, nice be whole. And I normally put over the hot end of the enclosure, they normally shove them around and do whatever. And I just let them get settled. And yeah, the females will start going there. Some will belly up, some won't. And they'll, they'll start to twist and knock themselves up prior to egg deposition, and then uh, they'll lay. So, you know, talking about maternal incubation, that's something you want to try next year. so Got a couple of big nesting boxes for some of the big carpets. So in the in the python racks, they fit in nice and they're, they're plenty big enough. So it's something you want to have a crack at this year, I think. Yeah. Get a bit get a bit more advice on it. Um, and that's yeah. pretty much through yeah. the breeding season. Then it's just you know once they're out, incubation. If you want to talk about incubation, how I do that, I can carry on.
2: Yeah, go for <laughs> it. What, keep, what keep type of incubator are you running?
1: Uh, I've, I've, well, I ran out of smoke. I had a massive double door. <laughs> funny, funny story. A mate of mine was a copper and he used to work at um, in, in the city. And he rings me up and he goes, oh, we've got an old, it was like a forensics freezer, I guess. So like He said, we've got this freeze at work. He goes, double door, you know, big insulated stainless thing. He goes, do you want it? They're chucking it out. I'm like, yeah, 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 i love it. You know, sent me a phone. I'm like, yeah, sweet. So drive into the city, Surrey Hills or whatever it was, and the police gone in there with the trailer, and they dragged, mate, this thing weighed 15 tonnes. It was massive, weighed a tonne. So they came out, forklifted on them a trailer, which luckily I could offload it at work on the trailer. And um, so I'm picking him up, he's like, yeah, he goes, make sure you give it a good clean when you get home. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll give it
2: a spray (laughs) lift. And he goes,
1: Oh, no, no, I'd, I'd get some bleach and I'd do this. I'm like, oh, yeah. he goes, yeah, it's our forensics freezer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he, in, he goes, oh, no, it's had like sperm samples, dead body parts, you know, organs, <laughs> all sorts of stuff in there. And he goes, then when the, dot, when the freezer crapped itself, he goes, half the stuff defrosted. And oh. food <laughs> I'm like, now nah, you're telling me you could have told me that before I was picking it up, putting, trying to slide it on the trailer and tie it down.
2: So the <laughs> say it set out
1: the front end. At work in the in the warehouse, and was like I think I used about fifty liters of bleach and thirteen bottles of F ten on it, and just oh. gurned it out and left it there to soak. But oh, yeah, God. so I had that one, which I ended up uh, moving on, and then I had a couple. Of, <laughs> <laughs> I used it was actually it would hold twenty one clutches of carpets in a, wow. in a decent sized tub, so it was yeah. it was pretty good. Um, and then I have what I have now is they're from Quirks, I think it is, and they're. About 700 by 700, sort of thing, and you know, six foot tall, double glazed glass, front, like drinks, fridge, commercial drinks type yep. thing. Yeah, um, so I have three of those. So, um, I had two, and then I'm like, I know I've got at least another uh, oh, eight, nine, maybe 10 clutches to come. My incubators are full, and um, the mate Brett Smith at KHP is like. I've got a spare incubator, Daz. you want to come get it? And I'm like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, it's got 10 clutches in it. So um, if I didn't have that, there would have been no choice but to do some maternal incubation. So um, with my tubs, I mean, there's, there's a lot of methods that work. I'm finding um, I actually use less and less water. So I've done in the early days used to do vermiculite Uh, 50-50 by weight with water, so 500 grams of vermiculite to 500 grams of water and and mixed up. I then went, uh, had a few problems with some of the eggs and didn't like them sitting in the wet vermiculite. So then I changed to the same vermiculite, but then I would put a dry bit of perlite on top and then I would just sit my eggs on the the dry bit of perlite. That worked. Um, And then... A Few were saying over water and use the water crystals and this sort of stuff, so I then gave that a crack. But what I found was some things that hatch, it's almost like they go into the crystals, they're a bit thirsty, you know. They you know, they pip the eggs, they come out, and they go down. Oh, let's have a drink. And I just had these perfectly formed snakes hatching and dying, and I, yeah, had no idea why. And it was the only thing I could put it to like, why is that just hatched first one out of the egg? So, you know, it pips tonight and the next morning it's up, and then you know, it's like dead a day later. And I put it down to possibly getting into the the water crystals the, in the in, in underneath the trays and them probably yep. possibly having a drink. It wasn't all of them, but just occasionally you get like three dead ones in a clutch. I'm like, what's yep. going on? Um so I cut that out, that idea out, and now all I do is literally put not even enough water to cover the bottom of the container. So I literally just pour a bit on um, the egg tray on top and then the eggs on top. And often with some, uh, if there's too much humidity in there, I've even taken clutches out three weeks into incubation, taken them out and completely dried the tub, poured the water out the whole lot, left the eggs on the tray. Obviously just left the tray out, drained the tub, give it a wash, dry it all out, and just put the eggs back in the back in the incubator, and it still develops um, humidity in the tub. Yeah. So I'm at the point next year I'm actually going to take, like, just a little capful and pour it in just to give it a little bit of humidity if they need it.
2: Have you thought um, of running maybe water in the, just in your incubator instead?
1: Well, I reckon – so I run holes in the top of my incubation tub, So I just have yep. a soldering iron hole in each, each corner, so four holes. And I actually had – I actually read out of incubation tubs – so I'm like, bloody hell, now what i am going to do? So I didn't have any more milk crates to cut up. i <laughs> <So, laughs> like, oh, I've got some, so I've got some, they're probably a five, five, six-liter sort of tub that I actually have that I take, you know, some of the older stuff when I go to the reptile shows to sell. I just put them in the containers and off they go. And I had it close and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put it in. Just put it in on the thing, no water, no tray, nothing. Put it in the incubator, walk near two days later and there's humidity on the sidewall of the, the tub. And there's there's nothing in there at all. And um, obviously, I was then panicked because I thought, oh, shit, I hope there's not like water, you know, sitting on the floor of the tub and the eggs are sitting in it. So it's not the floor is dry. It's just a little bit of moisture on the the sidewall. And um, I actually think because of those air holes that I have in the tubs, because there's quite a few incubation tubs, there's enough humidity evaporating yeah. out of that, that it's creating a bit of humidity in the incubator itself as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I have heard of people like using trays of water and stuff yeah. like that, but I'm starting to think, you know, I mean, we've been doing it a while and it's like every year <laughs> it's like try yeah. something different. So this year I think I'll just try less water and even – Maybe not no water, but very, very little in some, and I'll, I'll see how it goes. But, you know, water can be a big killer for eggs. You know, if you've got too much humidity exactly. and that water is dropping on top of the eggs or whatever, uh, it's, it's not good. So, if I see humidity on the roof of the uh, incubation tubs, I take them out, dry it, and I'll take the water out and I'll put them yeah. back in. Yeah. So, and that's what I do for incubation. And, you know, unfortunately, you still lose eggs. Doesn't matter what you do. That's yeah. just the nature of the beast. You're dealing with nature. You know, once. You know, you have paired the animals. There's nothing you can do. You know, that's right. you can all you can do is, you know, tick all the boxes. Is your female got conditioned? Have you cooled enough? Have you, you know, the boy is ready to go. You know, paired up. Have they made it? She ovulated. You know, once they ovulate and that egg development starts, mate, what hatches it in, you know, a few months down the track. You have zero control over. Yeah. At all. So, you know, I guess that's a good
2: thing about having so many eggs containers in that incubator as well is and having holes in each container is you've got that buildup of humidity in the whole incubator itself whereas if yeah. you've just got one container in that incubator with a small amount of water you might not have enough humidity yeah, because got, you've got possibly. so many you've got yep. like that that big buildup of humidity 100 yep, being so such not- a, a good seal on that fridge door as well
1: yeah 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 i i aerate the incubator as well in terms of um Cause what I found was going back to the big double door contaminated uh, incubators that I used to have <laughs> um, was, you know, I had to double stack tubs and yeah. then I'm like, if you're trying to aerate those tubs, you know, you're, you're constantly pulling the eggs out. And like, I had some people messaging me and they're like, you know, Oh, here's my eggs laid, and I'm canning it today and I'm canning it tomorrow. And I'm counting, mate, leave the eggs alone. You know, if yeah. you want to candle yeah. them, I don't even bother candling anymore. Like, I used to candle every clutch. It's always cool. But now if they're in a nice clump, I'll literally take them up, put them in the tub, they're in the incubator and set and forget and don't yep. touch them, yeah. you know. Um, and I used to, with sealed lids, take them out, take the lid off, make sure there was some air exchange in, inside the tub itself. But when you've got them stacked on top of each other, and, of course, you've got double doors, so you've got a pillar in between, so you've got two sets and then one in behind it means I have to take these two out to get to those two. And then I thought, you know what, this, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And that's when I went the air holes in so then I could actually cross the tub, so to speak, because the, where the holes are in the tub, there's like a little uh, shallow section in the, the lid of the tub. So I'll yep. put the holes in there. Yep. Then I can cross them cross them over, and that allows all holes to breathe with the two tubs on top. So now I just literally grab the doors or door and open and shut it a few times every couple of days, and I'll just drag that air in and out and just leave the door shut and go away. Yeah. So, and just monitor the eggs, you know, rather than take it out waft it over. It's all right when you've got a, maybe having two or three clutches, but, um, <laughs> yep. you know, like when, <laughs> when there's lots, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it just it's trying to make things, I mean, like, you know, I don't mind hard work, but if I can do something easier, then yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll find an easier way to do it,
2: you know? and that's more so, time you can spend on the animals that are that aren't incubating as well. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, my you know. mic's muted, Luke. Whoops. Um, <laughs>
1: it's hard, hard to find good help, Chase, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's not, it's not episode like 33 or anything. Uh, nah, or, you know, nah. We're, we're <laughs> had a little bit of practice. Um, so because d- Jason kind of missed out on uh, how many clutches you you happened to yeah. hit this year, do you mind sharing with that, or is that a bit of a secret number for yourself?
1: I've, I have kept it pretty quiet. Okay, um, fair enough. <laughs> I have, it, it, was, it was a personal number. We were, I was talking to Brent because obviously, as you know, uh, Brent from KSP and myself have been doing egg cutting shows, you know, and yeah, and we kind of do it kind of two reasons we do it. It's one because we enjoy it, you know, and we can offer some some of the stuff that we've learned, like what you guys are doing with your shows, you know, other people coming off of their experiences to other people that are less experienced um, and just sharing our knowledge. So being able to help people that are, you know having their first clutch and haven't bred something before or they want to pair stuff so we'll do the egg cutting section and we go we'll we'll actually say to each other oh we'll we'll try to keep it to like half an hour 40 minutes keep the show short so we normally get through the egg cutting but then we've got a lot of people asking questions and you know we don't have thousands of viewers you know might be 30 40 people or something or other at certain points but i'm like what do you do like we want to help people we want to Try to share what we know and and hopefully you know get more people interested and involved in the hobby and that sort of thing. So then it becomes you know a questionnaire. So we just decide, oh well, we we'll just we we'll just answer the questions yeah. and we'll carry on. Sorry, what was your question? I sidetracked myself. I forgot what you asked him. That's
0: okay. It's it's kind of a good distraction. I was because uh, you know you've you've hit a bit of a personal best with your clutches this year. But oh I mean, yeah, uh, that's all right. Back, to, back well, to the
1: clutches. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. So so then um. Yeah, and we were trying to decide during the thing. I was like, oh, do we tell everyone or do we just let people guess as we go along? So we kind of, <laughs> I know I told you before, but uh, yeah. That's right, we'll keep it for later. Um, yeah, no, yeah. cool.
0: Um, so I will.
1: I will at, the, at the end of the, sorry, before you just go on, I, I will, we did talk about it. So at the end of the season, because we always, you always hear about people and you always see like the good clutches. Yeah, yep. see the failures. That's and, right. You yep. know, I lost a girl this year. She became egg-bound and had complications and died quite rapidly. Um, there's things like that happen. When you have a lot of animals, you see this more often. When you've got five snakes or ten snakes, you know, you don't see it. When when you've got several hundred you're working with, um, you see a lot, you'll get clutches of slugs. You'll get a nice clutch that you think is all nice and half the eggs die off. So we actually wanted, I said to Brent, because I've got it all listed down. I said it'd actually be good to do a show and talk about statistics, like, you know, mm. here's how many clutches I had, here's how many slugs I've had, here's how many good eggs I've had, and here's what I've actually hatched. And, you know, to ach- actually see the numbers, because I think people think, you know, you pair you buy a pair of snakes for a thousand dollars, they're five hundred bucks each, and oh, they'll have twenty eggs, so I'm gonna make all this money. It doesn't doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, my last road nope. bill was three grand. Yeah, and that wasn't a big order, either. That wasn't a lot of stuff, so and then you know, your power bill true. on top
2: of that as well. Oh, yeah,
1: three yep. it's about, about
2: three grand a quarter. Yeah,
0: and if so, you're raising animals up versus yep. just buying an, an adult pair, pair or whatever, or if you're like me and you let two male green tree pythons on the loose by accident, you know, like <laughs> Oops. It, it kind of sets you back a few years,
1: you know, things talk, happen. Talk, talking about let one on, on the loose, um. As I mentioned before, I was working away. My wife didn't quite shut one of the hatchy drawers she'd managed to get feeding. So it was a caramel, post double head, Xanthi albino from a Moonglow um, pair. So I'm like, oh, she has, oh, this one, yeah. yeah. So she has, oh, this one is not in this tub. I said, well, obviously you didn't shut the tub properly. So this disappeared. So this was probably March this year, two weeks not even two weeks, probably last week, we're walking out the door. My wife screams, oh, there's a snake. I'm like, what are, what's gotten out now? i thinking, oh, did I not shut a drawer? Had a look, and it was the caramel that had actually gotten out like six months earlier sitting at the doorstep. Well, we, looked, we hunted high and low and uh, never found it. And here we are walking out the door, and here it was. I'm like, I'm sure that's the one that got out. So we had to backtrack because I was away, so my wife was sending me photos. Went back, found the tub. Found the snake and mashed them. Like, yep, that's it. And actually, just fed it last night. <laughs> Smashed a the food. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, one that escaped that I actually found. I thought it was definitely gone for you. The dog had probably killed it or something, or a yeah. bird or something. But yeah, here we go. Six six months, probably best part of six months later, knew yeah, it was still cruising around. So You never know. It might, yeah. You know,
0: like, male uh, uh Well, at least it's at my in-laws' place. So worst case, if. Uh... It pops back up, at least it's their place, but um, yeah, who yeah. knows? They're a couple of years in now, I think, so <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> hold, not holding oh, out my hope. hopes.
1: Well,
0: go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I reckon they've been turned into a power, powerful owl pellet. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, no, well, um, so speaking of you know. Eggs and and getting your hatchies and stuff like that. Have you got any sort of like tips that you might want to share with some people out there? That maybe it's the first hatchy season and they've got a clutch of carpets that are being a bit a bit painful. Have you got any tips to get them? Feeding? <laughs> yeah, apart from Feet. pull your hair out. Ask. Yeah,
1: <laughs> pull, pull your hair out. Um, first thing, they feed at night time. Don't try during during the day. Obviously, they're a nocturnal creature, so you know I've, I always get my best results. You know, you know, quiet time. You know, 8 nine o'clock at night. And, you know, so, I mean, you can start earlier sometimes because well, I've got a lot to get through. So sometimes it'll be seven o'clock. And you should hear the yelling in the house, you know, like <laughs> you're sitting there trying to get one. Finally, one takes it. And someone, you know, I've got a 16 year old son and a 13 year old daughter. And one of them comes stopping out of the room. like, Aah! I'm like, shut up, you know, like, stop <laughs> you know, trump, tramping through the house like an elephant. <clears throat> so they know, like, I'll say I'm feeding night that I, okay they stay in their rooms and there's silence in the house so <laughs> keeping it you know not a lot of vibration so to speak um, try to keep the room you know I, I'll have a light on but I'll try to have it a bit darker and obviously at night time when they're active um, in actual terms of feeding <laughs> with if, if it's um, Morelia I normally go for always try pinky rats first and I'll try I'll actually try to have the pinky rat. A bit hotter than what i would normally so i'll defrost I'll, i don't defrost a lot so if you've got a clutch of let's just say 20 for argument's sakes i'll defrost maybe three pinky rats, you yeah. know and literally go there because you get some that just no matter what you try just don't want to eat so you move on to the next one so i'll defrost them in hot water out of the tap always make sure you put your hand and go yep yep that's pretty warm um and i find with that added body heat, you suddenly put your hand in front, you've got this little tiny hatchie and it's picking up this massive heat source in front of it, I think it can be hard for it to actually pick up the food item. So I have mine in in racks. So my temperature in the rack um, is quite high, like 34 to sometimes 35 degrees. I find the heat helps them uh, fire up, especially once you get them feeding. It really crinks their metabolism along. Uh, unlike some lucky people that eat chondros to eat straight out of the egg, uh, I actually <laughs> wait um, for my stuff to shed. So I normally just leave the clutch in the incubator in a tub. So I'll clean the tub out, put some paper towel down, put a water, water bowl in there, which I'll check every couple of days. And I'll leave leave the clutch in there and normally wait till they shed, uh, providing there's room. Um, and then once they've shed, I'll take them out, put them in their racks. And I normally give them – I normally find – there's this point between I'd say between a week and two weeks. So it's it's like a sweet spot. You get this, for whatever reason, you'll get the right night, and just you'll just everything will feed with minimal effort, so to speak. And if you kind of miss that window, I find if you go too far, it's like they've absorbed what's left of the yolk and the egg. They've got no fuel left, and their metabolism shut down, I guess. So you need to get that metabolism. So, offering so nice warm food, nice quiet, nice high temperature in, in the tubs, um, somewhere for them to hide. I normally put them on paper towel, and most of the time I used to put hides in everything. And then obviously, that's a pain in the butt when there's lots and lots of hatches. So, I find with paper towel, they'll actually go under the paper towel. So, I'll grab a pair of tweezers. I try not I can slide the tub out. You can look underneath, see if they're under the in between the two sheets or underneath. So, I can have it where the snake is, put it back, and I just use tweezers to peel back. Um, the paper towel and push the other way. And I'll then offer the pinky. I'll normally just put it in front of their head in case they're asleep. I mean, they've got no eyelids. So I don't know if they sound asleep. Or they're actually looking at me and what's going on. So, and I'll normally leave it there and watch for a bit of tongue flicker. Like they will let me know that they're, they're smelling. And then I'll just, gentle bit of movement and I'll kind of watch the reaction of the snake. If they don't do much, I'll rub on their back in their midsection. So just gentle. It might even just be like the foot of the pinky, like just a very light touch, so they feel something, which will obviously get them to move. Some you'll get, you know, you'll literally do that, and their natural reaction is to strike. Um, I like to get them to strike. I find once you can get them to strike, sometimes two, three times, suddenly they'll grab, uh, they'll grab, and then that's when you freeze. So you offer it the feed as soon as it grabs it, and you let go. It's like freeze, and if you can, slowly, you know, back away. Watch out for shadows. I've had, you know, snakes where you happen to move the tweezers across and the shadow goes across their eyes and they drop and go, what was that? So, you know, little things like that, just just watch out for. So come to the side, keep your hand, um, you know, out of kind of that heat-sensing pit kind of range. So you either come from the side or up above. So, you know, so if they're looking, you know, your hand's up above the shelf, um, above. So try to keep your hand out of the other way. Don't, you know, have the pinky here, the swank there, and your hand in front, you know, so you've got the massive heat source. So try to keep from an angle. a head first. Uh, gentle touch on the back. Uh, if that doesn't work, uh, as Luke mentioned before, touch on the back of the neck, which will get them to off, and they don't like it. So they'll snap and, and turn around and grab, um, and if that doesn't work, you can try uh, what I call slap feeding. Um, so actually give them a little bit of a whack on the head, a touch on the tail and try to force them up, try to get them to strike. If they're placid, what I'll find is you'll get some that will just bolt. And if they, do not matter what you do, they just, there's no tongue flick or, you know, and you touch them and they're just going around the thing and they're trying to launch you up, shut the draw walk away because they're just not going to eat. And all you're going to do is agitate that animal. I don't like to get it to that point because I find it's almost like an association. They get the smell, the scent of the prey item, whatever it is, and if you've peed them off to the point that they're crapping their pants, so to speak, and they're trying to launch themselves out of the tub and get away from it, the next time that smell goes in there, they're going to have a similar reaction, and it's very hard to get back get them to feed from that point in time, which is where you might go, right here, now. now I'll try a fuzzy mouse, give them something different and try a gentler technique with them. Um, so there, there are a couple of the techniques I use. I used to use scenting. I mean, you can scent with, you could probably probably wipe it in grease and scent with grease, I suppose. But, like, you know, I've done skink tails, used to catch the old garden skinks around the house and catch them till they drop their tails and let them go again and then Get their tails, mash up their tails in a bit of hot water and a bit of make it almost like a paste out of it and dip the pinky head in it. You can brain the pinky, you can try to get a bit of blood from the pinky's nose. Uh, I've used duck feathers, quail feathers, pilchards, white bait um, like you name anything, that has got a different smell. The problem I found with using some of that stuff is that it can be very, very hard to then get them off it. Often they'll, they'll wean through, but I find it. If I can't get them to take through the methods, I will then go into an assist feed, into a, into a force feed. So meaning that I'll, I'll get the snake, grab its tail, grab its head, get its mouth open, stick the head of the mouse in or the, the pinky rat, uh, just enough into its mouth so the head's like in the smell, I'll gently pinch the head of the snake in the, the jaw and pull it back to try and catch it on the teeth. I'll then let it go in the in the tub. Some will just automatically you know, first reaction is generally try to, to, to back out and spit it out. And some will try that and then they'll sit there and they'll just hold it in their mouth. And others will just for, for a little bit and then they'll just start to eat. So and that's really good. If you can get them to assist feed like that, and the next time you go to feed them, offer them the food again. And often they'll take it or it might a couple of assist feeds and then they'll they kind of get in the swing and they'll feed it. Um, and I'll repeat that process. Oh, three, four, five times whatever it needs to be depending on the prey item because each time it goes in the mouth it covers the rodent with saliva which makes it very, very slippery and eventually you'll get to the point that you'll get in the mouth and get it halfway down and then you'll just get the tweezers and I wouldn't recommend anybody to do it unless um, they're experienced or got someone to show them how to do it properly um, but you can force with it you got to be very, very careful how you do it you can force it through the side tear throats you know, you can cause damage if you've got a larger prey item in there so it's it. It's a method, you know. I've I've done it many times, and I, I find it the easiest way for something that's being a terror to to get feeding. And each time I'll offer it a food item. If it knocks it back or does start doing laps around the plate, I'll just grab the snake. I force feed a, a smaller item. Um, sometimes that'll be two pinky mice in a, in a carpet python, just to give it a feed. Put in the drawer, and I don't even touch it. Don't even go back for another week, and and, and let it go. And eventually. You'll go in there. You'll you'll do your same technique of offering it a food, and one day it'll just grab it, smash up, and coil it. And the other thing I would recommend for anybody, if you get them feeding, feed them more often than not. So don't feed on Monday and go, "Oh, great, it's had a feed." We'll now leave it till next Monday. I, I really recommend feeding, you know, like every four days if you can, for maybe four or five feeds. And because what I what I found is When you get them to feed, if you leave them for seven to ten days, it's almost like you've got to start again. You go back and offer them another feed. They've digested that meal. Their metabolism slowed down. You're then going in and you're trying to get that snake to feed again. And some will automatically take it, and others are like, you spend half an hour getting going, you finally get them going, and then you're back to square one. When you get them to feed, you are obviously got nice high temperatures on your, your hatchery racks. Get them to take that first feed three, four days later, bang in with another one, and if they, you know, you, sometimes you got to work a little bit, you get it to take another one. By the time you got the fifth, you're opening that drawer, offering that food item, and they're just bang, coiling up, smashing it and eating it down. Once you've got, them, got that reaction going really well for a few feeds, you can then back off to once a week if that's what you want to do. Yep. But I, I, you know, I find, I don't know how you guys find it, but I find if you feed more regularly, particularly as a neonate, Once they've got those feeds in, they'll respond really well. Once you've got that feeding response, that's when you can just start. You know, if you want to go in once a week, go. Oh, yeah, these guys have. You know, these guys have all had like six, seven feeds now. I can just go once a week, give them a feed, and I'll I'll take it, and you're off and running. But yeah, how do you guys want same sort of thing with getting them feeding?
0: Or I I used to be pretty much like every uh, seven to fourteen days a long time ago, but straight out of the egg now, I'm trying to pump a bunch of food into them basically not force it but yeah i I like that kind of like every four or five days thereabouts just to try to do like small meals more frequently yeah because it gets that gets them kind of clued into it they go yep okay this is what i've got to do i'm I'm full i'm you know I'm, i'm eating food so yeah i'm the exact same way like i'll probably feed these greens again tomorrow um the way they're going and you know it only takes a few weeks and then all of a sudden they're good, and then you can space it out to that seven to ten days or thereabouts. So it's just about kind of getting that that brain function going that this is what I need to do. I need to catch this. I need to eat this. And once they've kind Absolutely. of clued it in for those first five or six, then they're generally yeah. good from there. Uh, Definitely. Same same yeah. as what
1: you tell people when you're, you're selling a hatchie, same thing. Get it home. First thing you do is get it established feeding. Once it's established yep. feeding, you can then introduce your hand until it's slowly but surely. You know, just yep. most important thing is it has to eat. Correct. You know, let it just take the time, and get it feeding. It's the same with every single hatcher here. You know,
0: yep.
1: yeah. I don't play with them. Don't touch them. Don't do anything. I literally open the drawer up, feel like they're water bowl. I mean, they're, they're are tiny. You know, I don't even bother changing the paper towel till they've probably had four feeds, you know, unless, of yep. course, they've spilled a water bowl or something like that and I need to. But yeah, I you know, just, the less I can touch them and handle them, the more stress free they are, the yeah. better I can get that feeding regime going. Yeah.
0: So um, Ryan Cox brought up a pretty interesting question here that I wanted to be bringing up. Um, He just asked, are rat pinks the choice just to make things easier as they grow so you don't have to transition from mice to rats?
1: Yeah, I I, I try to. Um, Some are buggers. I I kind of have a – I just defrost everything together here. So, you know, I might be feeding a rack where I've got, for example, something comes out of the egg, feeds bang straight away. And then I've got other stuff that's a pain in the butt and it's taking me, a, you know, I might have used a mouse to get it feeding or whatever. So I'll defrost rats and mice together in, in one container. So they might be, you know, slightly bigger and slightly smaller and I'll, I'll feed the whole lot. If you get them early enough, so let's say you started off on fuzzy mice, going to the point that I say about feeding every three to four days, it normally gives them a very aggressive feeding response. So once they start to take it, as soon as that food comes in and they grab it and smash it, that's when you make a transition. So if they've got that food response, um, and if you don't quite get that, defrost rats and mice together. So to just take out some of the smell. So if you've been using fuzzy mice, throw in a, one fuzzy mice into a couple of rats when you're feeding rats to everything else and then offer that snake that's eating the mice a rat as well. And often they'll kind of sniff it, they'll come up, they'll want it. And you can use a technique I call stroke in the back where you just start to gently rub up and down this point, spine and they'll start to arch up and push against it, right? And when they start to do that pushing up, they're going to eat, right? They just, you know, you've just got to keep that teasing and apply that pressure on them. And they normally want to feed them. They're just not sure about the smell. They're like, oh, I haven't smelled yeah. this before. And you can work with it. And once you've kind of get that in, don't stray away stick to your game plan so if it if it takes the mouse uh sorry it takes the rat just keep going with rats i've, I've got a couple here that i'm i'm having a bugger of a time getting on the rats i'll get them to go they'll they'll change over but sometimes you just got to work it and a bit of starvation never it goes astray either yeah <laughs> you know, don't take it eventually they'll get hungry and they'll, they'll that's right they'll want to eat something. but yeah, yeah. so I find if you have to get it started on a mouse try to get it switched over to a rat as as quick as you can once once it's feeding really well. So maybe four or five feeds Yeah, start getting, particularly with Morelia, with uh, Antaresia, you know, probably doesn't really matter if they eat a couple of adult mice versus a wiener rat or something or other. But, yeah, certainly um, I try to switch them over as quick as I can. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So s- speaking of feeders, a while ago you actually bred pretty much all your own feeders,
1: didn't you? <clears throat> I did. I, I actually started breeding rats and mice It, it kind of – I got to a point. I've probably had uh, probably 60, 70 reptiles. So I had quite a few lizards and monitors. But then I was building up snakes as well. So I had a friend that used to work in a. Uh, I'll just say work in a place where they had lab rats and mice, and um, I decided to start breeding my own. So that was probably uh, two thousand and two or three, something like that, and I found. I find it was a good balance that I had enough of a rodent collection to feed everything that I had and then build up extra in my freezer. Then when I got enough extra in the freezer, I was able to sell those on. I used to make a few phone calls to a few mates um, and say, I've got some extra rats. You guys want to buy any? They'd come around and, you know, back in the days where I was happy to have people come to my house, um, would buy the excess, and that would cover the food and, and shavings. So I almost got to the point I was able to feed all my collection for free of charge other than 14 hours every Saturday out in the garage cleaning all the rats and mice I amassed. So I did that for a number of years. Um, then I was at that point. So 2004, a uh, my friend, uh, myself and a mate, Neil Cash, um, started wholesaling reptile products, sole distributor for Tim uh, and Donna down at Autumn Reptile Supplies, so we started doing that. Neil um, decided to, to go on his own way and do his own thing, so I carried on with the business for probably I think I worked for, with and for him for about four years. So during that time, I got busier and busier and busier, and at the end, it was like keep maintaining a collection. I would probably grown into around a hundred hundred animals. Cut down a lot of lot of um, lizards, but obviously had more snakes. Um, so cut down uh, on the time frame that I had to look after everything. So, Saturdays where I would happily go in the garage for 14 hours cleaning all the rats and mice, I just said, you know, what? I, I can't do everything, can't be on the road five days a week, traveling around to every pet, pet, pet store in New South Wales, come home, then look after you know 100 odd reptiles or something at that point in time, and then find time to you know clean rats and mice on the weekend, you know. I'd sometimes get like six pallets of, you know, uh, reptile equipment up from URS and I'd be up till three in the morning trying to unpack it all, get it all inside the house. And, you know, it was all done from home. It wasn't in the warehouse. So it was all, all done by hand. So I'd made the call to um, sell everything up. So I kept all the rodent tubs, just got rid of all the rodents, time-framed up. And then, the, then as years went on and depression kicked in and all sorts of stuff and life went bad, um, I decided to get back into it to try and dig myself out of a, a mental hole that i you know, been a long, dark tunnel of no goodness. And, um, yeah, I got the opportunity to start doing it on a more of a commercial level. So that started off, oh, I'd say, so I had all the equipment that I had which I'd amassed over the years, uh, rodent breeding cages and rats and mice. And I probably had around three hundred, like mice females and three hundred rats, and I couldn't keep up. Like I couldn't b- believe it. Like I was being sold out. I was supplying, um, started supplying rats and mice to the reptile part when John Mostyn was working up there, and I actually had to get to the point that I said, "Mate, I sorry, mate, I I can't keep up." I need to expand. So I actually spent quite a bit of money and expanded and I took the collection, so to speak, from that 300 females out to about 1,200 mice and rats into a warehouse which happened to be owned by my wife's boss. And he goes, mate, you can uh, you can share this, you can use this and come down here and we'll help you out. And I'm like, oh, awesome, thanks very much. And, mate, it was um, unbelievable. Like just it was so busy, I just could not keep up. And then to master that, by that point in time, this was probably six probably six or seven years ago, at that point in time when I moved into the warehouse, I think I had, I was probably around 150, 160 snakes, and suddenly I've got an endless food supply, well, literally an endless food supply. Like, you know, I'd gas hundreds and hundreds of things every day, and I literally... Go okay. I need to bag up some of this put it in the freezer, and I'd literally take, you know, like the the mouse breeding tubs and that. I'd take like three or four of them, just filled with rats or mice, <clears throat> down the snake room because it was all in the same uh, warehouse. Down the snake room, and I would just feed off everything I needed to. Then I'd come back with whatever was left over. I'd just bag up and put it in the freezer. So suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm, business is going well. It's making. Plenty of money, selling plenty of rats and mice. I need more snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I bought more snakes. So I was able to then quarantine at home um, and not take down the warehouse. So I was able to bring home stuff, quarantine at home, get checks, tests, all that sort of stuff as, as required. And then down the warehouse it went. And, you know, then the collection at that point went, plus breeding season and holdbacks. So A pepper project was going on and suddenly it jumped up from 100, that 100 of 50-odd snakes into over 300, um, like whole backs and everything, not including the, the stuff I was selling. And then it grew and grew and grew. And then the same thing kind of happened, I guess. We got was a two-folded prong. The guy that owned the warehouse had had an offer he couldn't refuse and um, put on the market. And my wife works flat out five days a week, long hours, and you know, we had two younger kids. So, like, the kids are 16 and 13 now. Back then they were, you know, five, six years ago, they were a lot younger. So someone had to take them to school. Someone had to get them from school. So I would normally get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, go down to work to do the drop-off, and then I had to leave down the warehouse at 1 o'clock to get back home for the afternoon duty. Um all the rats and mice, we get to the weekend and we would get down to work at nine o'clock, you know, bit of a bit of a rest on Saturday morning, get down to work at nine o'clock in the morning and sometimes work till three and four in the morning, just trying to catch up, go back home, and then I would literally go down the next day to guess what we couldn't get through that day. And then, you know, back to Monday off we go again. So mm. it, it got to the point that yeah, it was it was good to feed mistakes, it was good to make some income. As a a business, uh, I went back to supplying the reptile park for for a couple of years, doing that as well, Um, and plenty of regular big customers. But the workload, it just got to the point that was just, again, just too much. It was seven days a week. And unlike snakes, we can go, you want to go away for a week, I can go through, check everything's got water, clean, tidy, and I can go away for a week and not worry that something's going to, you know, die. You can't do that with rats and mice. The food and they they don't stop. They're mammals. They eat so much food and drink so much water and everything. To go away on holidays, you know, for for two weeks, I had to find someone else that was able to come in um, to maintain and look after the the animals. And the three weeks prior to going on holidays, you'd have to work three times as hard because to get on top of everything before you go, to make sure everything's gassed, you know, there's minimal amount of rodents in the colony, um, to feed and look after, then you go away. By the time you've been away for two weeks, there's another, you know, four or 5,000 pinkies and stuff that's already been um, dropped, given birth to. You come back two weeks, everything's dirty again. So where yeah. are you? Stage one, then you got to, you know, bust your guts for another three weeks to get on top of it. And that's just to do with the rodents, not forgetting that there's, you know, a room down there with three, four hundred snakes in it as well that... All had the same thing. Need to get back in there and clean all those and do all that. So uh, it was it was really hard. It was very sometimes it was very mentally hard. I, I struggled with um, suicidal depression for a number of years, um, and you know I I, uh, I won't go into detail, but it, it got to a point that I, I changed from you know self harming and all sorts of silly stuff, and I was literally eating myself to death. So that was when we got rid of the. The rats, mice, sold the premises, got rid of it all. And as much as I miss it, it is also the best thing I ever did. <laughs> yeah. So you know. Well, I suppose um, at least
0: nowadays you could probably enjoy your reptiles a little bit more rather than busting your gut so much, you know, at least you're at home with your snakes and you know, sure the rodents still cost you an arm and a leg to have to buy in, but Yeah. You know, spending a Definitely. bit more time on the actual thing you
1: love. Ah, oh, it's it's much nicer. I've just Going back to the gym. So I was just hit the gym last week, just started back there again. So this is week number two for me. So the legs are a bit sore today after leg day at the gym. <laughs> but, yeah, to be able to, to get up, you know, make sure the kids get off to school, go up to the gym, spend an hour, hour or so at the hour, two hours at the gym, come home, you know, have my protein drinks, have a rest for half an hour and then be able to get involved in the snakes, you know. like yeah. Whereas it was a, a a good drive down to work. It was 40, 45 minutes and peak hour traffic, Oh, yeah an hour to an hour and twenty yeah,
2: <laughs> depending yeah. on
1: being in Sydney so it wasn't like you know you could go down there and you know start doing some work whatever you did you had a time frame on so if you're going through cleaning your tubs which you did every day you can only get to a point if you go through tubs and there's a lot of wieners that have to come off and everything you have to get to the point that you know it's going to take you an hour to an hour and a half to gas them all, to weigh them all, to bag them all, to get them in the freezer, to go down and feed whatever excess there is, you know, they're you, limited. So it was, yeah. it was really hard, you know, it was it's good. But being, I mean, if I had them at home, you know, like if you look at a Peter Birch scenario where he's, he's got himself set at home, it would be a different story. I probably still yeah. have them because I can just walk out the backyard Go, you know what? I'm hungry. It's lunch. I'll just leave this here. I'll go and have something to eat. Then I'll just walk back to the backyard and I'll carry and working in. Yeah. Then I can come in for dinner. And you know, it's, it's it's all different. But that travel time and have to be home just you know,
0: yeah,
1: killed it. I guess. So, yeah, much easier. Enough.
0: Enough. <laughs> yeah. All right, mate. Well, uh, we've kind of hit that magical two hour mark where yeah, it's. Um,
2: <laughs> is <This> flu. <laughs> we
0: might have to get you back for round two, Dave. Yeah. because that's um, sure, I think you only we only went through about half of the actual questions, but the amount of information you've thrown out there yeah, for all of our listeners has been absolutely phenomenal. No, it's um, any time. Yeah, we might might have to definitely hit you back up. Uh, maybe maybe in the near future. Um, do you have anywhere that you can throw out that you know if anybody wants to contact you or whatever, or you know pick up some new snakes or whatever? Like, where can they find you at?
1: Yeah, so. Darren you' on Facebook or Morelia by Design um, and also Darren Morelia by Design on Instagram. Uh, I am trying to work out how to YouTube these days, you know. So these old old folks like myself aren't that <laughs> great with technology, but uh, it's getting there. And there is – I do have a website in, in the making, so I finally having this time at home has allowed me to finally catch up on stuff that I've been trying to do for a long time. But, yeah, yep. if you're – Want to catch up, flick me a message, hit me up on, uh, on Facebook. It's probably the best place, on uh, either to my account uh, or on Marelia by Design. I'll, I'll go to either and check them as often as I can. So hit me up by all means and feel free to ask any questions. I get People ask me questions about all sorts of stuff all the time. If I can help, I'll happily do so.
2: Excellent.
0: Uh, awesome stuff. We'll make sure to chuck, chuck your links up on uh, on Facebook and stuff so if anybody out there Thank is you. listening can pick up some more carpets or some Antaresia or something like that off you. Um, Definitely. Yeah, I always enjoy looking at your tables at the expo just to see what other crazy colours yeah. are out there these days.
1: Yeah, actually I was supposed to, was supposed to go away working. I am going away in mid-January and actually had to Messing with boss because there's two shows back to back weekend after weekend. AJ yeah. and of course he hurts someone. I'm like mate, I need to be home for these two weekends. He's like, oh yeah, yeah no worries, no worries. So yeah, it's like bloody hell. <laughs> I'm supposed to be away for work. <laughs> you know? but not that it matters, you know. I'll just yeah on a different chieftain roster. It's all good, but yeah. So, but yeah, I look forward to the shows. I love the shows. Catching up, again, yeah. So, for to catch up with you,
0: bloke, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Very good. Definitely, that sounds good. All right, guys. So uh, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.net and email them at info As far as contacting us in our social media platforms, you can email us at AustralianHerpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back here next week for another episode of the Australian Horticultural Podcast. Good night, guys.
2: Good night. Well,